What's up, everybody? Welcome back. It is episode 15 of the What's Real podcast. I am your host, Ed Demko, along with my co-host, my main man, the J himself, Jared Bajoris. How the hell you doing? What's up, hey, uh, nice and pumped up this week. The veininess is out. The purple hue is glaring, and we don't need to be somber. We've all been pent up for a while, so it's time to just get straight to the entertaining, brother. Yeah, I was going to say, I think this is going to be the first week where it's like we're moving in the stages here officially. Like, if you listen to like two weeks ago, it was like, you know, the kind of our, our the closest we're going to get to panicking. And then it was like, you know, then acceptance. And now it's probably going to be a little frustration, I would imagine, because um, it's not I mean, we don't live normally anymore. So this is uh, this is where we're at. Yeah, it's kind of settling in kind of the time frame of somewhat getting used to it. I mean, I still on a daily basis utilize the word weird. I mean, it's definitely a weird time. Um, I had to do some essential shopping today and it's just very strange being out and about right now. Um, My wife and I drove just to get the kids out. They obviously just stayed in the car and she was the only one that went in. We're not bringing the whole family in like some people you you see too, which I don't believe is, is going with a lot of these warnings we're getting. Uh, we just all wanted to kind of get out, at least go for a, for a drive since we had to get some essential things. And um, I actually haven't even personally been in a store yet, but just being out and about as I have is, is a weird feeling and just how little people are, which, which again is a good sign that not a lot of people are, are out and places are jam-packed, obviously, even though, of course, there's going to be those um, exceptions to that rule in, in places that, that don't adhere at this point, especially nationwide. But my wife will, will come out of the store and just say, yeah, it's just, it's just so weird being in there right now. Well, whatever store that was, did they start the thing yet there where they're essentially doing a lineup? Yeah, there's like a lineup. She said something okay. about like glass barriers and certain lines and, you know, there's markers for the six feet thing, which again, it's all good. It's all showing that a lot of people were listening and, it's what we've been saying ad nauseum throughout these weeks that it's just good to be precautionary. If we could look back on this at, at, after getting through it as, as a society, as a global event, global pandemic and say, well, in the end, we kind of did overreact, ha ha ha, but we're all fine. Then I'd rather have that than be like these idiots that are fighting the system. Like I'm not, a, I'm not one of the sheeple and, you know, and I'm going to go fucking spelunking with 17 friends and Corona light, you know, it's like, just be precautionary and and it's going to be a quicker out for this. Yeah. I mean, that's the way I've been looking at it. I mean, you know, I kind of wish there was a nationwide shutdown at this point because I think, again, it's just pushing off the inevitable, but you know, I mean, everybody's trying to do their, their best. Unfortunately, that's really, really good for some people. And uh, that's really, really bad for others because some people just don't seem to get it. I've just, um, I've just been really you know, getting in the groove with, uh, again, when, when we were discussing my personal experience, uh, like I was saying last week with my interest in hobbies and creative endeavors and things like that. Uh, you know, now another week later since our last recording, I've really been enjoying that, and I've been dipping into the things I was saying. I've been gaming. I've been reading. I just started the. Um, I'm a huge Arnold Schwarzenegger fan, as you know, hey, Ed, since I was a kid. And um, I started his biography, his most recent biography uh, that he wrote. I think mm. it came out in 2012. Uh, so it's been pretty nice overall in Pittsburgh. So I go out on our back deck for like an hour, read a few chapters of that. You know, that's a nice portion of my day. Uh, I've been mentioning, you know, home exercising, uh, running around the neighborhood and things like that's been going well. And I even started, I, I don't know, if, have you ever seen um, Empire of Dreams, the documentary? 
That sounds familiar. It's, it's the big uh, Disney produced. Well, I shouldn't even say that. I don't know if it's specifically Disney produced, but it's like the main uh, produced Star Wars original trilogy documentary. It's called Empire of Dreams, and it's really good. It's in, it's inspiring for a uh, independent filmmaker. I'm wondering if I've seen this or not. I mean, I don't know if it's. Is it, I'm assuming. How'd you watch it? Was it on Disney? Well, Plus that's the thing. Yeah, it came. Like it came that. out a while ago. I think Damien had mentioned it was on the Attack of the Clones uh, DVD in particular. I think it was like the year it came out, so it was like an extra on there. That's where he watched it. But um, you hit the nail on the okay. head. I, I actually watched it on Disney Plus. Um, I saw it on there. But uh, my point to bringing it up uh, to correlate with what I was saying for like the kind of new. In, in implementing daily hobbies in my daily routine with having more free time and all that, that really got me pumped up because the um, Rise of Skywalker recently came out on Blu-ray. So I have that. So I have all nine Skywalker, um, Star Wars movies on Blu-ray. So after watching okay. Empire of the Dream, I was like, you know what? What better time than any am I going to have free time to watch? Um, and true. I'm watching it episode one through episode nine i'm not doing like the ori- original trilogy first like they came out theatrically oh you're 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 watching it in the actual, actual episode one through line. nine i got so you. i've never done that that's actually cool i've never done exactly that so i started that i watched um episode two yesterday because my buddy dame i was texting with him he's like dude he picked up on the way i was texting he had thought and assumed that i had already watched and did that the way i had put it originally to him that i was going to do that and he's like dude that's like Okay. Almost thirty hours of Star Wars you watched already. I'm like, no. I'm like, at that time, I'm like, no. I just watched Empire of Dreams. I'm just getting this idea. I'm, I'm gonna do like one a day. It's gonna take me in, into like a two week time period. You know, I'm not sitting and watching them all in a foul swoop. But yeah, I'm watching them in, in that order, and it's it kind of works out too because in my opinion, the three prequels are kind of overall the worst one. Um, I'm gonna revisit Revenge of the Sith episode three. I remember liking that the, the most out of the three, and I haven't watched it in so long. I don't even have a true opinion on it, so uh, that's the one I'm on. But it's kind of like getting one and two out of the way, and then really getting in, into the meat of it. And I haven't watched the original trilogy in a long time either, even though I've obviously watched them a million times since I was a kid. But it's it's been a, it's been a significant period of time since I revisited them. So yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm like how it, it sparked the idea, and, and like I was saying to the the point of the whole opener here with with the pandemic living i'm like what what better time because knock on wood especially at this time i don't want to jinx myself but i'm not somebody that normally gets sick which is like the only other time i'd be able to get caught up on like lord of the rings or or star wars the stuff i like um so i'm I'm just taking advantage of the time but yeah that that's my big kind of watch project in the next couple uh weeks here yeah, my, I'm, I'm at the point here where probably today or tomorrow I'm going to finish what my first one was, which was, uh, I mentioned it last week, me and my girlfriend are watching The Sopranos, and uh, we're literally two or three episodes away from being finished. Oh, nice. So I've rewatched six seasons of The Sopranos. Uh, it, you know, it's really weird, man. Have you ever gone back and rewatched it since its original airing at all? No. When, other than like random episodes? Right, yeah, when you mentioned it, no. I haven't, I haven't watched a thing. Well, okay, so let me ask you this then. You, you remember the original run, right? Yeah. And I think we were all pretty much in the same line of thinking. Like, uh, you know, the show got worse as it went on. 
Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, the ending is controversial with a lot of people and stuff like that, but I'll be honest with you, man, going back over it, like, and I was one of those people that would say that probably like seasons five and six of the show, I was kind of agitated and I was just like, look, can you just end this so I can finish watching it? Because I've been watching it since the beginning, but like rewatching it, the fifth and sixth seasons are pretty good. Like they're, they have some problems, but don't get me wrong. I mean, it's, they're not as good as the, the first handful of seasons, but I'm actually liking it a lot more than, uh, than I thought I would, to be honest with you. That's how art works. I feel is sometimes you need that second watch, sometimes even third, uh, it correlates with like listening to music, um, and even actual art, like certain mood. paintings, because exactly that's what I was going to bring up. It depends on the mood you're in, what's going on, things like that. Um, another factor, uh, me and you discuss this a lot of stuff, uh, especially with these big franchise movies that are out in theaters now. You have that high expectation going in as compared to maybe going into a certain movie that's like going to be your dark horse. We're going into it. You had low expectations and it kind of blows you away more than you, you had anticipated when you have that high expectation. You're kind of like, eh, that was lukewarm. You know, so there's all those different different aspects in, in with any kind of art. And dude, that reminds me too. I wanted to ask you about this because it's something that I I was lucky enough to see. I actually got to go to the premiere for it, uh, and I just found out yesterday that it was on Amazon. So I, I hopped on and actually watched it again. Um, but it's 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 a documentary. It's called "We'll Work for Views," and it's uh, Weird Paul. Right. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's it's on Prime right now. If you ever want to, oh, check really it cool. Out. I will. Yes, we talked about Weird Paul, and I I have a lot in common with him, so I definitely want to check that out. Yeah, if you guys aren't familiar, that's just something a real quick thing that I'll say right here. Check out Weird Paul. Look him up on YouTube. Look him up on Facebook. Uh, he's on TikTok. He's on all kinds of different streaming services. But this dude's really interesting, dude. I I've met Paul. He's a super nice guy. Um, he's he's a musician. Uh, he runs kind of like a retro vintage ish, uh, YouTube channel. Um, and this dude, uh, he's, he's been called the, the first vlogger. And the reason why is because he has a ton of, of videos that he made as a kid and he kept them and he's managed to upload most of them to his YouTube channel along with all kinds of other new content and just, you know, all kinds of stuff. But Weird Paul is definitely somebody that I think is really cool and the documentary is really cool. So if you guys are listening to this and you have no idea at all who Weird Paul is, uh, you could watch his documentary on Amazon Prime right now if you guys have it. Uh, you could do that. And also, you know, if, if you don't and you just want to know who Weird Paul is, there's a bunch of ways of, of looking him up online and there's a ton of content and stuff, especially, you know, as we were mentioning right now with a lot of the downtime and stuff that people have. Uh, Weird Paul's actually a, a fun uh, like lighthearted, cool uh, thing that I think a lot of people might get uh, a lot of enjoyment out of right now. And very original. And, and that's why I mentioned I have a lot in common with him because not to self-promote, but um, you know I kind of did the same thing. Like Ed mentioned, we did Backyard Wrestling. We have uh, tons of footage of that online. We have a full-blown movie with tons of um, special features. And I kept well, a ton of I our stuff. I got, I got to jump in here again, yeah. and it's something you're, you guys are going to notice that I'm building this up, and it's going to take some time because it's it's a neat thing, and obviously, like, with me and Jared haven't even talked a lot about this, but it's something that I would like to do for the show, but the two words that you're going to hear me talk about on this show that you guys aren't going to know what the fuck it's about or anything, but one day, I promise we will do something for this, but it's ring heat. 
Yes, and it, you know, talk about, I, I use the, for some reason, there's certain words because we talk so much doing the podcast each week for a couple hours. Um, I, I, there's so many, the same words I use, but hey, that's the human language. There's always so many ways you could put something, but I, and I've already used it twice, correlate. Let's play a drinking game every time the Jay says correlate or correlation. But that, that com- <laughs> it completely correlates with our new segment that we're debuting a little later tonight, Thursday Night Prime, oh, because yeah. that was the influence of Ring Heat. Um, but yeah, we, we can get into it on a later date and break it down. Uh, but just in a nutshell, like, like Hey Ed said, um, there's a lot to it. But it's basically the first movie that our group of friends tried to make when we were like pre-teens or like 14 or 15, something like that. And uh, again, it's ba- we tried to make an action movie. We didn't have a script. And it's just so very bad that it's good. You know, it's so very bad that it comes out entertaining because it's you can see the heart of us attempting it. And we, we won't talk about the intricacies until we do it. But if anybody does want to get a jump on it, why not? It's, it's on our website, churchillpictures.com. Um, you know, you can find it on the website. Uh, do a little searching in our, our views. We, we, churchillpictures.com right now is basically set up like our quote-unquote own little Netflix channel. There's almost 50-some-plus uh, original videos, uh, and Ring Heat is, is within there. Um, so, yeah, check it out. But, yeah, we got to cover that one day, man, along with uh, some That's, of our backyard stuff as well. I mean, obviously, this is just shooting the shit on the show. We haven't even talked about it or something, but it's just an idea that popped in my head. Me and you should do a commentary for Ring Heat. Yeah, it'd be great. And that, that would add something with it because it, <laughs> it can't be tough to watch in all honesty um, for some people. Like if you don't know us and stuff, I, I would see why it might, you know, portions of it might be tough to get through because it is just, you know, again, it's 14 year olds with a camcorder in the mid 90s uh, attempting to make a feature film. Um, so uh, just from that, like if, if I heard that on this podcast and didn't know us, I'd be interested. So, you know, who knows? Um, again, yeah. art's, art is subjective, but, uh, but yeah, we'll definitely have to, to dip into some, some ring heatness one day on, on the podcast for sure. Well, I think that, uh, you know, we've pretty much said it all there. Um, as far as that's concerned, obviously tell you guys, uh, coming up on the show, uh, we're going to do an in-depth review of both nights of WrestleMania 36, uh, that was just this past weekend, so we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk about Dark Side of the Ring, uh, episode two of the season, technically episode three, on New Jack, which was something else, uh, but we'll get into that later on in the show. And again, uh, brand new segment debuting this week. It's uh, none other than Thursday Night Prime, uh, and we're going to review No Contest. Uh, a very interesting action movie from the early 90s that uh, I know me and the Jay uh, have quite an affinity for uh, in one way, shape, or form. And also, we're going to be talking about the new Richard Stanley movie, Color Out of Space, uh, with Nicolas Cage, uh, the H.P. Lovecraft adaptation on the show this week. And of course, we got some goofs or goofs for you. Uh, Maybe a little swerve, if you will, in that, but also definitely a giant goof. Uh, if you will. So what do you say that Jay would pay some bills and come back and we're going to start talking about WrestleMania. Let's get that green. Sounds good, brother. Let's do this. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real podcast. This is Ed from the What's Real podcast and I'm talking to you about Slice on Broadway. Our job as we see it is to make the best darn pizza sandwiches and salads money can buy. We make everything we possibly can from scratch and we go out of our way to use the best stuff out there. We wouldn't be able to sleep at night if we didn't. We have an abnormal obsession with pizza. We're perfectionists. We're stubborn. We're uncompromising. We're probably a little unstable. Bad news for our future therapists. Good news for pizza lovers everywhere. Check us out at www.sliceonbroadway.com. With four Pittsburgh locations in Beachview, 
Call us at 412-531-1068. That's 412-531-1068. In Carnegie at 412-276-0200. That's 412-276-0200. At the PNC Park location at 412-325-4485. And on the East End at 412-450-8375. That's Slice on Broadway. And we're back here on the podcast, and as I mentioned before we went to break, we were going to get into some in-depth review of WrestleMania 36. Obviously, if you guys aren't following, uh, this was the very first WrestleMania uh, with zero fans. Um, This is also the very first WrestleMania held on a closed set, basically, at the Performance Center because of everything that's going on in the world with the coronavirus. So let's get into it, man. On Saturday, they had their very first show, and they had a 10-match card basically set up, and uh, let's get down to it. Opener uh, was actually a pre-show match between Cesaro and Drew Gulak, with Cesaro winning at about 4 minutes and 25 seconds. Um, I don't even know if you watched this one or not. It was a nice little match, but it was basically just a television match, nothing special. Yeah, and again, we, we kind of covered it going into it because it, it is the exact setting that the NXT Raws and SmackDowns that they're producing um, under the pandemic the last few weeks have been, obviously. So we, we've, we've got a fair taste of what this was going to be like. So as we said in our preview, the most interesting thing about the shows as a whole, and I say shows just, you know, part one and part two of, of WrestleMania 36, was it them taking it up a notch in ring work wise, how that was going to correlate as opposed to, uh, as you mentioned, Ed, how the Raws get kind of broken up with certain promos. And then they, they show like footage of an old mania match. They showed the rumble and they break up the show like that. So this was going to be the first full show where it was just going to be full on in ring going all out with no audience. Uh, but we did get that kind of appetizer of, of the shows in, in WWE TV leading into it. So this being the first match on the kickoff show, um, it, it was kind of in line with those previous ones just because it was a kickoff match. So you didn't get a real feel for how Mania was going to be different with the no crowd uh, off the, uh, the outset here. Uh, but like you said, the match um, in general, though, was a good contest. You know, nice, nice uh, quick kickoff match. Um, you know, nothing out of the ordinary for what a kickoff match is, but, um, but it, you know, it's, it was the right pace and, and the right amount of time and it was a good, good way to get things started. I enjoyed it. Absolutely. And I uh, moved on to the opening of the show, uh, for the night, the actual show itself, no pre-match or anything like that with Rob Gronkowski playing the host uh, of WrestleMania this year. Uh, I absolutely hate Gronk. He's a fucking goof, but that goes back to more of my uh, feelings as a football and small fan. Little, you know, small little uh, what's real trivia. He went to Hey Ed and I's high school, Woodland Hills, for a fart like one one year. Yeah, <laughs> just one year. Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. So, But I was like, I always say that to people too, and it's like he gets brought up, and I'm like, oh, I fucking hate that dude. And people are like, really? And I'm like, yeah, I'm like, figures, the, the dude that would go to my high school who by all purposes I should like him, like, but no, because he went to New England, so fuck yeah. that dude forever. And it's not like we know uh, him, but I, I hear, because uh, I do know people that, that have met him, I, you know, my girl Jen was at Woodland Hills the year he was there, things like that. And you do like you hate the stereotype, and he just seems like one of those big, 
just goofy dolt athletes like the classic Meat, jock. Meathead jock. Yeah, and that's that's yeah. like what he is. <laughs> so like him like him or hate yep. him on that too, you know. Uh, but then he he basically just introduced the show. He wouldn't do a whole lot uh, really this night, but that doesn't mean that he was done for the weekend. More on that later. Uh, but the opening matchup, uh, which was a pretty solid matchup, was for the WWE Women's Tag Team Championship. Alexa Bliss and Nikki Cross would go on to defeat the Kabuki Warriors at about 15 minutes, in, uh, which was kind of a... Not just a good match, but like it was kind of a surprise. I didn't expect them to lose the belts, and I probably think they, they shouldn't have. But nonetheless, decent match, decent opener. Uh, and this was the first match that kind of will lead me into something uh, that you'll notice with me throughout this review. Um, but it was kind of interesting to see these people tell an in-ring story in a match without the crowd. And, I mean, obviously that's not a good thing in most cases, but for me, it's starting to become something, uh, of a good thing. That, and I'll, I'll explain a little bit later what I mean there, but I mean, just for simple matches and the storylines that they're working in the match with the crowd, really not having their say, it has been interesting. And I don't mean that in a bad way. That's what I was going to say. This was the first match that kind of gave us that taste that I was alluding to in the kickoff match that I was kind of looking at seeing like, you know, when's it going to really, give us that taste of, 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 again, them stepping it up a notch, you know, as opposed to these Raw and SmackDown TV matches in that setting. And exactly to your to what you were saying, hey, Ed, it brings up uh, the storytelling without the audience, the reactions, the selling. And I started picking up on, like, the, the, the way that the selling was with the hearing, the grunts, and, and things. I started to kind of, you know, lean towards enjoying that in a weird way, just at, at this point, you know, specifically. And, um, you know, like you mentioned, man, it was a solid match. Uh, I was, I was also surprised that they did the, the title switch. I wasn't expecting that. So, um, you know, I, I definitely enjoyed it. And I think all four of them are pretty good too. I mean, Oscar's unbelievable. Yeah, she she's always the best. does something to just like make me like her more. I think Kyrie Sane's really good. I think Alexa Bliss did a really good job in this match, as did Nikki, because they, like, you can tell kind of in this situation the more experienced people, um, because they're not stuck at doing the same shit. And I mean, like, doing the, you know, like some people you'll see in the show kind of like mocking to the crowd that's not there and <laughs> yeah, stuff. Yeah. And you notice that the, the performers that are more polished aren't doing that. They're figuring out other ways of doing it. And that's something that I'm going to talk about in a, in a few minutes with another match. And I'll explain myself better during that. Cause I think it's like the perfect example of what I'm talking about. Speaking of that, the weirdest part about what you were just saying, I, I feel even with the main talent, just because of what it is, we, we talked about it um, on a, on a previous show uh, when we were kind of breaking down a raw with edges um, entrance that I was talking about is the entrances. Because they're doing exactly yeah. that. They're like doing their entrance to nobody. And it's just no matter, no matter what, it's not their fault. I still respect it. Like, you know, they're doing what they need to do and everything. But yeah, that's that's one of the weirdest things that it's just you just can't work around without a crowd like them coming out to you know, one announcing you know, and a couple announcers and the camera guys. Yeah, it is it's pretty weird. It definitely takes some getting used to. Um the next match was the first match on the show where we had kind of like an angle playing out. Uh, because if you guys have been watching uh, some of the TV shows previously, you'll see that King Corbin uh, would go on to almost kill Elias because he threw him off the damn 
I don't even know. Like I call it the cherry picker because that's what it reminds <laughs> yeah. me of. But it's like this podium. Yeah, it's like the TV and, <laughs> raises the camera guy or whatever. Yeah, so it's like the same kind of idea. But uh, but Elias would have the third match against King Corbin, which he won in about nine minutes, which I thought was kind of weird because especially with the way they've been pushing Corbin constantly, you figure the perfect time to have Elias lose a match would be the you know, after he got thrown off a goddamn thing <laughs> yeah. and got completely annihilated. Yeah. But he won this match kind of easily, but this was also the first part of the night where I felt like uh, somebody was taking advantage of the fact that there was no crowd. And by that, I mean Corbin in this match a few times was like yelling at the cameraman, yelling at Cole and JBL and stuff like, oh, you like that move? Right. What do you I've... think about that cameraman? Like, I thought that was actually really good, and I was impressed by him doing that. Yeah, it's nice heel tactics for an empty audience. You know, it's like, hey, if I have nobody to to be a heel to, then the few guys that are here, I'm gonna be a heel to them. Yeah, <laughs> that that's exactly the way I felt. Yeah. I'm like, that's pretty fucking cool, and that was a good pickup by him. I thought so. I give him a lot of credit in that match, but the match again really wasn't anything special. Um, I kind of understand where they were going with here because they're trying to bring it down a little bit. They're they're still working like there's a crowd. And that's odd, but I mean, I get why they're doing it because even though there is no crowd, there's still people watching at home. So you still have the same kind of ups and downs on a card that you would normally have. That's exactly it. I feel like at this point they're playing towards specifically the cameras as far as the crowd goes. Yeah, exactly. Like that's, yeah, that's, instead yes. of the crowd, they're going to play towards the cameras because that's where the crowd is. We're, we're at home quarantined. But th- this match wasn't really anything to write home about. So, I mean, you know, Elias went on to win in nine minutes. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah, you nailed it, man. Uh, that's, it, was, it was all right. Next up was a huge match, which I was actually surprised was happening this early on the card. But it saw Becky Lynch versus Shayna Baszler for the WWE Raw Women's Championship. That was a decent, snug kind of match. But we saw Becky Lynch win in eight minutes and 30 seconds. Uh... With a like the I call it the Bret Hart move because it's it just reminds me of Bret Hart and Piper from WrestleMania Eight, wherever the dude has you know somebody has somebody in a sleeper and the the person in the sleeper finds a way to roll them up, get the person on their back and roll it up and use the move to their advantage. Um, it was a weird finish. I have a funny feeling these two aren't done yet, and I also feel like the results of this match might have been different if it was in front of a crowd. I think that's the main reason here why they had Becky keep because it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense otherwise yeah this was the first one that, that was like that where you know I, I said the same thing to my you know i was watching on my my own or, or with my son or whatever and i was as far as the ending went for this match i said that i'm like this would have been better off in front of a crowd like the first two kind of pulled it off and kind of got me in the vibe of watching even though uh, like we mentioned corbin and um what's what's uh i hate when i bring elias. <laughs> elias when they you know it was kind of just a decent match, but like you said, with uh, Corbin playing towards the camera and doing the different antics, that, that got me interested. And th- yeah, this was you know, bottom line is this this was the first one I felt like yeah, that would have definitely been better if it was in front of a crowd and just a normal WWE full blown match, you know. And it wasn't their fault. I mean, I thought that they no. they were both going at it. Like Shayna was kicking the shit out of her, which was awesome. Uh, and but they basically did it where like the the theme of the match that I got was like. Baszler's beating the shit out of her, 
but the point is Becky is who she is for a reason. So they kind of did this thing where like she took a bunch of punishment and still found a way to win. So Shayna might be the tougher person, but Becky's the champion. So, you know, they were doing that kind of thing, which I mean, I don't have a problem with. I think it's kind of an interesting, you know, kind of psychology to have in the match, but it just wasn't right for the type of match they were building for. And that was the main problem that I had with it. Oh, that's what I was thinking. And this was one of those ones too. If there was a crowd there that they shift into another gear, you know, if it's a packed stadium and, and you can't replicate mm-hmm. that. And we'll, we'll talk about that with other matches. The ones that kind of go above and beyond not needing an audience compared to ones, you know, I'm sure that we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. You're like, yeah, it's just, it just would have worked better in front of a crowd. There's just no doubt. Next up, we had uh, one of the matches that I was interested in uh, for a myriad of reasons. Kind of, they just did this out of nowhere. But Sami Zayn versus Daniel Bryan for the WWE Intercontinental Championship. Uh, I'll say this, man, for a nine, a match that was almost nine and a half minutes, which isn't long. Um, they did a lot, and I haven't been a fan of Sammy's in a while. I just don't like what they're doing with him. It's, he's mainly just a manager until somewhat recently. Uh, but this match really won me over with Sammy. I thought Sammy, at this point, I was like, him and, and Brian are the two dudes that are the best in this situation with no crowd. Because Sammy was making a point of saying a lot of stuff in the ring that just added to the whole match, you know, all together because he was doing the chicken chicken shit heel stuff where he was just running out of the ring he wouldn't let brian get near him uh like every little thing was an annoyance with him like how he just he, he didn't want to get in the ring because he couldn't come to the middle of the ring and he's like he won't he's taking up the whole ring he won't even let me in here like it, it it's chicken shit heel stuff but sammy was really good at it and i was really surprised because i we haven't seen him do a lot of stuff like that but it's pretty clear i mean sammy's pretty fucking good so i mean it's it's not a shock to me that it was this good but uh for what they did i really really like this and this was one of the first matches how i was saying earlier where i'm like okay now these dudes can actually do some stuff with the crowd being taken out of it, and it's still going to be really good, and that's exactly what it was. I really, really like this match for that alone. For me, this goes right with uh, what we were saying in the opening segment about sometimes having too high of expectations. That, that was it for me because I know the, the history of both of these guys' careers, and I know that both can go. And so I was thinking in my head, you know what? This could be one of those ones that you're not thinking about, even with the knowledge of knowing how good the matchup is, that could just kind of steal the show. Just because it's not one of the, you know, fully attracted matches and build up matches. Because I think that was one of the problems for, for me personally. The build up to it was kind of bad booking. Uh, you know, just I didn't really like the build up. I was just looking strictly at the matchup of it. Um, so yeah, yeah, I think I absolutely. think I was kind of had too high expectations. I mean. Um, I'm in agreement with you, man. Sami Zayn as a heel uh, did a great job, but I think that's what threw me off kind of too. He was just doing his job as a heel, but for you know a full-blown, all-out match that I know these guys could have, that wasn't there. Although, hypothetically, if their feud continues and you know the classic thing we're saying nowadays, once we get back to normal, uh, you know, back to a normal WWE setting, this is one of those feuds that you know, say by SummerSlam, if it's their second or third matchup. 
that's when it, they could really have that steal the show kind of kind of match. But uh, for what it was, I you know I still enjoyed it because I, I love both of these guys. So I, I definitely don't want to say it was like a piece of shit by any means. Um, but I don't think I liked it as much as you did. Yeah, I just thought it was something different. That's what I liked about it. Yeah. I thought that you know these two guys for nine and a half minutes went in there and actually told a pretty good story, which I think most people uh, that are built kind of like these guys and but i mean like guys that can go in ring and stuff like that they really don't know what to do with nine minutes and i was really really impressed with what these guys were able to do with that time period because i thought for sure this match was longer than what it was and uh you know that's just you know completely a credit to the way that they worked the match yeah it's a good so, point yep. um i wasn't blown away by it but i just thought it was interesting yeah uh next up however uh was a match that i was kind of annoyed with throughout uh, the last few weeks because they were very unclear of what was going on with this match. But what it ended up being was a triple threat ladder match for the WWE SmackDown Tag Team Championships. Now, I normally hate when they do stuff like this. If it's a tag team match, I want to see the tag belts defended in a tag match. But under the circumstances, I get it. Uh, it was John Morrison who was representing himself and The Miz as the SmackDown Tag Champs versus Jimmy Uso of the Usos and Kofi Kingston of New Day. Uh, I'll be honest, this match, I the first night, the first run through, I fell asleep during this match for like 10 minutes. Uh, so I went back and actually watched it later that night. Um, I was going nuts. This match is awesome. I love this match. I think that these dudes work together incredibly. And I'll be perfectly honest with you, this might be my favorite match of the entire weekend. The finish was great. Um, they were doing, they were going balls out in this one, and I just appreciated that. It was nice to see a match like that, and uh, they didn't disappoint, man. It was 18 and a half minutes for a ladder match between these three guys, um, and the thing is, too, the Usos and, like, Kofi and, you know, the New Day, they have great chemistry. I've thought that for the last few years because they've had a couple feuds where they had some really, really good matches, uh, but John Morrison fits right in with these dudes. Great job. I love this match. As I said, it might be my favorite one of both nights. Dude, you, you swerved me even. Cause, uh, and I agree with you in the, in the buildup. But by the way, you talked about how the buildup was disappointing and then you fell asleep. I'm like, I, I am shocked that, hey, Ed didn't like this match. So, so uh, yeah, that's awesome. But, but, yeah, dude, I mean, I went nuts to this. It, it, was, it was definitely a, another um, experiment, if you will, and just going to be unique of a, a ladder match with no audience. Um, that's basically never been done, if, if never been done. So for, for them to just kind of not have that energy from the crowd, and, and I can tell you even just from <laughs> much uh, on a much different, different level with, with um, independent pro wrestling, you, you get that – that feel for the people, man, that's a real thing. And, and you know, cause it feeds mm -hmm. human adrenaline. Like us humans, we have that adrenaline and that adrenaline is in, inexplicable. Like even stone cold, Steve Austin would always say, you know, if you could bottle that adrenaline up, you'd be a billionaire, you know? So with, yep. without kind of yep. having that to rely on, I give these guys so much credit and just such a great pace of the match. Um, one of the, the bumps in particular, cause of course there was the expected huge bumps, you know, on display throughout, uh, Morrison, like you said, man, with his parkour stuff, he, he did the one where he did like a crazy parkour move from the top of the ring onto Uso, who was like on the ladder between the turnbuckles. And, crazy. And, yeah. And then there was another one where he did the, uh, he literally ran 
the entire ropes into a Spanish fly on Kofi. Yep. I mean, yep. you know, so so stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things that this is one of those matches that somebody that's not into pro wrestling, it goes into my playlist of showing them to convert them. That's that's the the level I give this match. Yeah, I was really impressed. I thought Jimmy Uso did an absolutely great job, too, in a match like this where he probably should have been overshadowed by the other two guys. I thought he did a really great job at not allowing that to happen. Yeah, you're right. And and honestly, like, you know, at this point, what can you say about Kofi? I think Kofi's great. I love Kofi. I'm a big fan. He's definitely the best out of the New Day. He's definitely one of the best guys they have on the roster overall. Um, I just like his work a lot. I think he could work with almost anybody. Um, he's a complete pro and a straight up veteran and he's exe- like they need more dudes like him on the card and I think that you know no matter where he is like he's a guy that I mean keep in mind he won the title at Mania last year. Um, so it's like they're he can wrestle anywhere on the card too so like that's another major asset to any company that has guys like that. So I just, I can't say enough good stuff about Kofi, to be honest with you. Oh, he's amazing. You know, he, he became one of those quote unquote rumble guys. You know, he always does those special yeah. spots in the rumble for years where he's either walking on his hands or jumping from the steel steps to the barricade without touching the floor and things like that. And, um, longevity within pro wrestling is, is a tough thing. And Kofi is in that upper echelon of guys that have had, some of the longest WWE runs, man. He's up there. I wish I had the stats in front of me, but um, as always with us, just riffing and covering the show. But Kofi's been around forever and has been consistent in, in his role, like you were alluding to, Hey Ed, forever. Uh, so, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big Kofi fan as well. And, yeah, this match was was a show stealer. And uh, I'm with you. There's a couple others that might be contenders between the two nights in different ways than this match. But in the end, the in-ring work and things like that, I, I definitely say that this was the, the match of WrestleMania 36, parts one and two. Yep, totally agree. Next up was not really a match, more of just a, a result. Uh, in 20 seconds, Mojo Raleigh defeated R-Truth for the 24-7 title, which would lead into something for night two that we'll obviously tell you guys about later. That really, you know, whatever, who cares? I'm not in the 24-7. That's the, yeah, so there you go. Next up, we had Kevin Owens and Seth Rollins in what ended up being a no-disqualification match uh, after Seth was disqualified during the match. And uh, they basically both agreed uh, to you know restarting it as no-disqualification. And the match would end up with Kevin Owens defeating Seth Rollins in 17 minutes and 20 seconds. And for a match that I really did not care about, like I didn't like any of the stuff really leading up to this that they were doing between these two, like even when they had the groups and stuff like a month or so ago on raw i didn't really care about it at all but um yeah this match was really good uh i thought they really worked hard uh owens jumped off the fucking wrestlemania sign which was pretty crazy uh and it is really weird dude uh, you talk about uh all the the instances in the show with no crowd that was one of the weirdest ones wherever you basically see kevin owens take this gigantic bump in front of eight people who are all cameramen and crew uh it was weird but it was a hell of a spot and the match was really good yeah it was a great match it it was one that would have benefited from a crowd but we're going to be saying that throughout the night for sure Uh, again comes with the territory of this and and this is where i'll pull uh something that i was talking to you about um off air prior to this 
uh, when we were kind of going over our initial feelings when we both watched Mania. And, and this is just uh, Jared's line of thinking, so bear with me. But hey, Ed got it. I kind of attributed this Mania in certain aspects of the way my brain was like consuming it to how when you're reading a novel and a novel will pull you in and you'll just read like three chapters and you, you just you know you lose space and time and you just you're just in that that novel. This was kind of like how I was looking at the no crowd thing. Like at first it was weird. It was kind of like annoying me, but by this match basically, and maybe even the ladder match, I was kind of over that. I was kind of just into the matches, you know, and, and you kind of yep. almost forget in certain aspects that, that, that it's crowdless. Um, so yeah, I wanted to bring up that aspect uh, for my goofy head and, and yeah, it, it was a solid well, no, match. But that's, well, what I was going to say is it's funny that you said that because at one point I was going to make the point that, at some point, I realized to myself how little I actually pay attention to crowds in most cases. I mean, sure, you pay attention to it, you know, during title changes and things like Like, there's a bunch of different times where you're paying specific attention to the crowds. But I found myself thinking a lot uh, towards this point, probably, in the show. Like, man, I really don't pay attention to the crowds much at all because I'm going through my own process watching a match most of the time. I'm listening to the announcing, whatever. But... You know, it just, it's just background noise for the most part. I mean, yeah, you want the pops and stuff like that, but there's a lot of times in wrestling where the, the, the crowds either aren't doing anything or they're entertaining themselves and making it worse. Exactly. And, and that's what made me bring up that uh, specific point for this, this match because the beginning of the match, they were kind of doing the back and forth, you know, tons of counters and reversals. That, that if a crowd was there, you know, that's what's starting to get them into it and stuff. And then once they kind of passed yep. that initial thing, and, and you already mentioned how they did the um, the disqualification part. So I like that kind of story storytelling aspect. You know, Rollins just trying to get out of it. And, and then, as you said, he, that led to um, Owens, as, as Owens can do. I love his taunting. You know, he's like, you, you said you wanted your WrestleMania moment. Does a swamp sent on off the, the goddamn WrestleMania sign in front of um, the announcer. They both did a really good job, I thought, with like talking shit in the ring and stuff, yeah. like how we were saying earlier in the show. Like these, this was the first match where both of them were doing it like back and forth. I felt like they were kind of riffing off each other during the match, and I thought, and they're both kind of good at doing that. Uh, Owens is really good at doing that, so um, I thought that that was another part of the match that really added a lot to it. Like I, at this point, I felt like people were getting creative. Like a lot of dudes were figuring out how they needed to go out there and work a little bit differently than they normally do. And it started to, to kind of show a difference at this point in the show. Yeah. It was like almost the, the shit talking kind of made the lack of a crowd add to it, you know, in a way. So, and, and this made me think of a side story. I'm not going to take long. It's going to be super quick, but uh, as you mentioned with Owens doing the freaking senton off of a, you know, two story, however high uh, sign through a, a table in front of like just the crew, but at least he's doing oh, it. Oh, here we go. <laughs> yeah, at least he's doing it in front of millions of people this. on TV. Because you, you, you take it away because you, you always told it because I, I was on the card even. Like I didn't see it. So you take over just, just real quick. It's just always a nice tidbit when we, when we bring these things up, you know? Well, the, are you talking about the ladder match specifically? No, oh, no, I was talking about uh, Dennis Gregory. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Okay. I got you. <laughs> yeah. Well, so. There was a show one time where Jared and a friend of ours, Gus, had a match uh, in, like, the hometown, essentially, where we're all, like, most of us were from. And 
you know, they had. Were you guys the first match on that show, or what? Or were you guys we, like close to the main event? We were close to the main event, but we weren't the main. Event. I think we were right. We were right before the main event. That was kind of the point because everybody was like filtering out, like because we brought most of the okay. crowd. Yes. So you guys essentially have this ladder match, and up to this point, you already had a ladder match that we like. We went. That was the first match that we went to see you guys, and we didn't know what to expect. Ended up blowing our minds, but. The second time, so we were like all like, okay, like we're all going for this. So you guys have your match. It's great. You know, it was a really cool moment for a lot of, a lot of people. Uh, and there was a lot of people there for it. Not a ton, but a lot of people. You guys know a lot of people. A lot of your friends came out and shit. So they decided to not put you guys on last, which was a mistake. Um, because most of the people left after your match. So there was another match going on at the time. I don't remember what kind of a match it was, but I do remember it included uh, independent wrestler Dennis Gregory from the Pittsburgh area. If you guys are familiar with like PWX and uh, IWC and companies like that, you, you probably know who he is. Who's a great dude, man. But and uh, so during a match, I remember I'm standing by like this door area that they had because I was like coming in and out. We were getting ready to leave. So, like, people were shitting around in the parking lot or whatever, and, like, I was waiting for somebody, so I was like, fuck this, I'm just going back in and I'm going to see what's going on. So I'm standing, like, they, they had seats on the one side, say maybe, like, four or five rows deep, and they were empty at this point, but I was standing beyond the seats, like, right at the edge of the seats. So during the match, and there's no guardrail or anything like that on the outside, he does a full suicide dive out of the ring where the dude moves, and he goes ass over tea kettle into all these fucking chairs. Like, I mean, he gets destroyed and it's like right at my feet, how this happens. And I'm like, Holy fuck. And he's like, Oh, like gets up selling it. I mean, he wasn't selling. I'm sure he was fucking hurt. But he's like, Oh fuck. I can't believe I just did that in front of 10 fucking people. And I literally just laugh to myself and walk out. And, and it's like, it was the funny, like, I was like cry laughing to myself because no one else, literally, the only people that were in there were like 12 year old kids <laughs> and just like old people that were talking. Yeah. So it's like, I, I was like, and I, th- the first thing I thought of was like, I can't believe he did this in front of 10 people. And then he gets up like, fuck, I can't believe I did that in front of 10 people. <laughs> and so it was. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Hilarious. Yeah, shit. we had to tell that but, when, when it jumps in my head, man, just get it on air. But that that when you said like yeah, Kevin Owens jumping off like a huge sign and there's nobody there, but uh, like I mentioned, at least he's on um, pay per view and the WWE Network with millions of viewers. So uh, shout out to Dennis Gregory. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Hopefully, he's doing well wherever he may be. Uh, next up is a match that really wasn't much of a match. In two minutes and ten seconds, we saw a replacement for Roman Reigns, Braun Strowman, defeat Goldberg for the WWE Universal Championship because Goldberg doesn't have more matches or matches that are more than three minutes. And frankly, Braun Strowman's not fucking Luthez or Kurt Angle, so you know it is what it is. Um, I didn't care about this match coming into the show at all. Um, I didn't really care about the result. I would have probably rather had Goldberg keep because I don't like Strowman at all. Not that I'm a huge Goldberg guy. It's just they're flip-flopping to the fucking title at this point. It means nothing. So it's kind of shitty, but, you know, Strowman's the universal champion. Yay. The thing I liked most about this match will show you why I highly dislike this match. They basically were like, okay, let's take away the first 
you know, five to eight minutes of work and just go right to the last four minutes of the match. <laughs> so it's just basically like four, four uh, spears from Goldberg, three power slams from Broad, take it home. So and it, it kind of goes, you know, we'll get to night two. It kind of goes with that too with these uh, these bigger guy main events. So, so yeah, I mean, for the, for the undercard to do what they did, I mean, I, I almost wish. And I, I get what you have to do with the Universal Championship. Don't get me wrong. And the allure at least of Goldberg. But, I mean, you almost wish that the main event was the latter or even Owens and, and Seth. But, but, yeah, it was what it was. And now Braun Strowman's the Universal Champ. And going into this, I didn't really know what, matches were on this specific show i didn't look it up because i'm like i'm gonna watch it anyway uh and i was a little surprised because the next match which was our main event of the well that's right my fault yeah this was was basically the main event yeah was the boneyard match between the undertaker and aj styles uh which saw the undertaker defeat aj in about 19 minutes but boy did it feel longer than that and not in a bad way this was fucking awesome Instead of doing this matchup in a ring like they usually do, this was set on a location of some random property, I guess. But the match would start out with The Undertaker riding in on a motorcycle, uh, just like old school Biker Taker, my favorite Taker, by the way. To Metallica. Uh, Yes, to Metallica, which was also a surprise. Uh, and previously, before this happened, we saw a hearse pull in with The Undertaker's old school music, only to have it be AJ Styles laying in a coffin, laughing, which was great. That was cool. This was super, super campy, a lot of fucking fun. And I was like rolling my eyes at the beginning of this. And by the time it was over, I was going nuts. This was fun. This was cool. Uh, I usually hate shit like this. I did not hate it at all in this match. Um, it was a good way of, of um, hiding some of the limitations that The Undertaker has. Um, There's some stunts. There was some involvement with uh, Gallows and Anderson and some druids. There was a fucking bulldozer. There was all kinds of shit. Uh, this was really cool. Um I don't know what else I could say. I really enjoyed the shit out of this. I wasn't expecting myself to. Um, This is kind of like what I like about pro wrestling, because sometimes when it's goofy and really weird, it's fucking entertaining, it's funny, and I end up liking the shit out of it. It helped my experience watching it with my six-year-old son, because he, like... Okay, I want to hear this. So break this down, because I want to hear the way a kid reacts to it. Yeah, because he's trying to understand it, basically, that it's out of the ring. And, and again, I mean, you know, a six-year-old kid as well is going to be entranced by freaking Taker on a motorcycle, even though he doesn't know Metallica to this heavy metal music. And, dude, he was just entranced from the door. Um, my son's a big AJ Styles fan, so with AJ being involved. And he was kind of just looking at it. It was almost like um, – because I, I got him uh, – the 2K20 video game, the WWE 2K20 okay. video game. And let me say bringing it up. Uh, fuck you, Ukes, because it's buggy and it's it's like almost unplayable to me. And a lot of uh, people out there have a problem with it because it like doesn't work and all that. But um, I digress because uh, my, my six-year-old doesn't have a problem with it. He doesn't know it's buggy. It doesn't really fuck up for him. But my point is they have certain matches on there. Um, they like have these new story modes now. So he correlated this with, with that experience. You know, like he's just like, oh, this is one of the – you know, it's, it is a boneyard match, and like he, he was just so, like, so into it, man. That's, and that's what was cool. 
So that kind of got me into it even more off the door because I, I would have probably been like you, hey, Ed, where I'm like, oh, like, just, you know, really on the fence here. Um, but, but yeah, as it went on, dude, it just built up. And, and like you said, all, all these spots. And um, at one point, uh, AJ gets thrown off a barn roof. And, and I, I don't know if you, you heard, this took eight hours to film. So, yeah, yeah. so bringing that up as an independent filmmaker, shout out to the, the crew on this too. Because they, they're not going to get enough credit, if any credit, because it's not like a WWE match is going to have end credits. But that's why end credits are important. Because you know, even if you see, say, a six-minute short film with two people in it, there was probably like a hundred-some person crew that, that made that thing. You know what I mean? So um, shout out to the crew. A huge, huge bump with uh, AJ getting thrown off the, the freaking roof. Um, you know, I like the the shit that Taker was talking and the way that he was acting in this man. That it's was like, good. Yeah, it's like he didn't age. You know, like like you said, they they played to his strengths with this. And two 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 points to wrap up my take on it. Um, the first being, I know that this is you know from what I saw online, which it's neither here nor there. I don't care about this. I was just interested to see kind of what people thought. And this was a classic match that there was no in between. You either loved it and got it or, or hated yep. it, despised it as like a traditional wrestling fan or, or why ever you didn't like it. I'll do respect to either opinion. Uh, I'm with you and I, I enjoyed it a lot. And, and the last thing uh, regarding this particular match was it is pretty ironic how the WWE had Matt Hardy, Jeff Hardy got hurt. Oh, yeah. Cause Matt Hardy, you know, let's give him credit. dude. He's kind of the one that started this. They're, they're even calling it online, the quote unquote cinematic match, you know? And, um, yep. For them to not ever pull the trigger on that, and again, that goes to, to Vince making all the, the decisions as I ran about with Federal B all the time, but it is the truth. And um, they never pulled the, the trigger on that with, with Matt Hardy, and then they go and do this. So, uh, you know, he took it in good light from what I saw online. You know, he's just appreciative that, you know, most most uh, true wrestling fans know that, that he was kind of the one that was the first to do something like this style. But it just shows you when – when WWE is put into a corner, they have the the crew, and, and if they give certain people the chance to kind of go against the, the grain and kind of do something unique and creative, and, and there's something like this on uh, the second part that we'll get into too, um, you know, it, it, it provides a unique WWE experience that you haven't seen before. And that's what I liked about it the most. I'm like, Undertaker and AJ, they, they'd probably have a great regular match, even at the Undertaker's age. AJ can still work around that and stuff, but this was something special that people are going to remember. So that's that's what my biggest absolutely. Thing and you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna say something that I haven't really seen or heard anybody say pertaining to this match. I think um, we all know how good AJ Styles is in the ring. Okay, that's he's been great forever, basically. Um, but the thing about him is, is this to me really showed something different for him. And I mean, just because of that alone, like if he could do this and he's as good as he is in the ring, to me, this is just my opinion, AJ Styles is one of the best talents we've ever seen, period, when it comes to pro wrestling. He could do everything. Uh, he's. I'm not saying that he's the biggest draw. I'm not saying that he's the best guy of all time. I'm not saying that he's fucking Hulk Hogan. I'm not saying any of that stuff. I'm saying that the fact that this dude has done literally everything in an industry. I mean, name it. What hasn't AJ Styles been able to do? Including this kind of a match, which a lot of guys can't say they've ever done anything like that. Um, so, you know, you're talking outside of maybe Matt Hardy, Jeff Hardy, uh, Undertaker, 
And then if you want to add in like the weirdo stuff that's similar to this that WCW used to do in like the mid to early 90s, like the Vader, Sting, and Sid, and uh, Davy Boy, Beach Blast movie that everybody always shits all over, <laughs> or the old uh, Dungeon of Doom skits that they used to do, like that kind of stuff. Um, those are the only people in the history of this business that could say that they've done stuff like that. And this is as good as that stuff gets, in my opinion. So a, a major, major notch for AJ, in my opinion, as well. And I think AJ, you know, all to your points, uh, the biggest thing that put AJ over in the WWE was getting over the, the hump with the mic skills. Um, not not that he's yeah. Dusty Rhodes, but he does what he needs to do, and that just makes him, like like you were saying, that total package, man. Like He can go with anybody. He has the, the look, he has the name, he has the music, has the, the, the mic skills that get him through. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, dude, I love, I love AJ. This, like you said, it's just a, another notch on his belt because, um, you know, he's even stated who knows how long he has, you know, a couple years, a few years, but it's not going to be ridiculously longer. So add this to his uh, accomplishments. Absolutely. So that was the first night of WrestleMania. Um, overall, I, I thought it was a very solid show. I liked it way more than I thought I would. I thought a lot of the matches were really good. Um, I didn't have a lot to complain about. My biggest complaint was probably the just thrown in Universal Championship match that was pointless. Uh, obviously, the 24-7 championship thing wasn't a big deal. It would become more of a big deal on night two. Um, but overall, good show, one of the better shows of the year, in my opinion, even with all the issues that they were working with, they managed to put out a really good show that had uh, quite the jaw-dropping ending uh, with the Boneyard match, so I give them two thumbs up for that first show, 100%. Again, you just got to go in with that wonderment of just wondering how this was going to come off with, with no crowd, and they pulled it off, and like a lot of people were saying, Kudos to WWE because I was a detractor. I'll admit that I'm on record here on what's real. I was saying I feel like they should cancel it or postpone it. That was my opinion. And they gave people because within all major sports and even the Olympics, even major Hollywood films, all are on hold right now. WWE is one of the few things still in the entertainment stratosphere that is still going. So I, I give them credit, man. You know, Like you said, after putting on a show like that that drew me in, Adding the boneyard match to boot, I'm like, you know, standing O for WWE. Honestly, like that's, you know, in this in this time period with the pandemic, not being able to do live events and any sort of sporting events and things like that, to still be going and put on a, a pretty overall, you know, the entire time entertaining show for three hours. Uh, I'm with you, Hey Ed. Two thumbs up. And next up was night two. Um, I was definitely ready for this after the first night. I was looking forward to another night full of good stuff, basically. Um, and it started on the pre-show with Liv Morgan defeating Natalia in 6 minutes and 25 seconds. Basically the same version of a match that we saw the night before with Cesaro and uh, Drew Gulak. Uh, just an opener, nothing special. I didn't care about it at all. I didn't even watch the full match. I didn't uh, see whatever. it. Yeah, I didn't watch it. Yeah. Uh, so starting off the pay-per-view again was Gronk uh, as the host leading off the night and uh, the very first match that we saw. And I was kind of surprised because this is one of the most build-up matches on the show was none other than Rhea Ripley versus Charlotte for the NXT Women's Championship. And uh, this match I thought was very good. 20 minutes, 20, almost 21 minutes. Uh, Charlotte would go on to win the belt. 
uh, which was a little bit surprising. Uh, I think for a lot of people, it really wasn't for me because Charlotte tends to win all of her big matches. That's kind of been a, a theme over her career, I guess. Uh, this is definitely a really good match. Um, it was hurt a little bit, I thought, by not having a crowd uh, because I think that uh, Rhea is pretty um, green as far as working to the crowd and stuff like that. So um, it was weird because this was the first matchup where I felt like there was the mixture. Like Charlotte was great. Like she knew exactly what to do the whole time. Uh, Rhea would have benefited from the crowd there. And I think, again, too, if the if this was an actual match in a you know, an arena or a stadium with all the people, the result might have been different too with Rhea winning. But I felt that um, because of what the way the show was and the way they were doing everything, they probably thought it would be a best bet to put the belt on Charlotte. And then you have another attraction uh, every week on NXT for Wednesdays competing with AEW. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think they, they built up the match at a good pace. Um, Ripley hit her one finish. I think it's the riptide uh, pretty early. Yep. Didn't get the, the one, two, three. Um, you know, Charlotte just bounced out of the ring after that and, like, regrouped herself. And uh, Ripley throughout uh, most of the match was fighting off um, Charlotte's trademark figure eight a bunch of times and the figure four and, um, you know, went back and forth and eventually, uh, yeah, locked it in and got the win. And I was with you. I was in my head just thinking Ripley was retaining because of that NXT factor and thinking um, Charlotte being, like, legit top four women on the main rosters – wouldn't be going down there and and especially because she's put over like i see somebody like finn Balor in different fits in different situations going down to nxt but i was pretty surprised by that but to your point that was a great point hey ed um i do see them trying to compete with AEW and maybe you know talking charlotte to to be on nxt for a little bit just due to that or something like that so so yeah but i was yep. i was surprised by the win but it, it was definitely a very good match and it's kind of cool, too, because I don't know how close you've been following NXT, um, but they're, this week they have, uh, coming up on their show, there's a six-women ladder match uh, for the number one contender uh, for the NXT Women's Championship. So whoever wins that match is clearly getting built up, and they've been pretty much building up most of the people in this matchup in different ways. So they're really presenting that winner with a potential uh, challenge. And I think that it's clear, too, from seeing something else later on the show that there's been another major female player in NXT that is now going to be on the Raw roster. Uh, that We'll talk about that later in the show. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, they're definitely setting somebody up new here to get a rub just to face Charlotte. They might even beat her in a big surprise or something like that. But it's definitely more interesting, I think, now with Charlotte as the champ. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what they do because um – there's going to be a lot of matches that didn't occur. That's like always the first thing yep. I look at, you know, because uh, Charlotte can, can maybe even, you know, and that's the whole point, bolster one of the, the mid-range or, or borderline people um, within the women's division on NXT. And she could have a great program with Bianca Belair, you know, something like that initially pops in my head and things like that. So, yeah, there's some definitely good things that can happen there. So, you know, like you said, it's going to be interesting to see what, what goes on. Next up was a match that I really did not care about at all. Um, it saw Alistair Black defeat Bobby Lashley in 7 minutes and 20 seconds. Um, these two didn't really play to anything except for each other. 
Um, there's not a whole lot of chemistry there because this was just kind of thrown together a match. It was more just to find a way to stick a wedge further in between Lana and Bobby Lashley, which I don't like at all because it's essentially the same thing they just did with her and Rusev for months prior to this. Uh, but a big win for Aleister Black at WrestleMania, I'll give him that. Um, he's clearly a guy that they have pegged to do big things, I think. Uh, but, you know, obviously with the situation being what it is, it's kind of difficult for them to put him in the ring there with just anybody or somebody that's going to make him look great. But it does give him credibility because he beat Lashley, and Lashley is significantly bigger than him. So that puts him right on par on Raw with being able to wrestle and be competitive with almost anybody on the roster. Off the bat, it was a weird matchup, and the storyline wasn't there. So, yeah, it was pretty pretty cold, and uh, the action was was fine. You know, it did its, its job. Uh, they kind of did the goofy thing with, with Lana, like you were saying. Like, I don't know if they're leaning towards slowly finally starting to, to go towards them, you know, breaking up and some storyline stuff there. But um, it, it's definitely a big notch for, for Aleister Black. And I like Aleister Black a lot, and he was kind of floundering. Uh, like a lot of guys do that get the call up from NXT to the main roster, especially raw and under Vince's watch and all that. So uh, this is, this is a good uh, plus for him and a good sign for him. So, um, you know, being a big Aleister Black fan, I, I like seeing him get the, the win over Lashley. So, cause I was, I was kind of surprised by that too. I was thinking that, that Lashley was going over. So I'll, I'll take it. I, I like Black a lot more than I like Lashley. Yep. Same here. So uh, next up was one of the more storyline-driven matches that they they had set up for this year's WrestleMania between Otis and Dolph Ziggler. Uh, they did the whole love triangle thing with Mandy Rose, and Sonya Deville was obviously uh, intertwined in this as well. Uh, if you guys saw on SmackDown, they did the big reveal of the like hacker showing all the video that explained that Sonya was the one behind all the, the drama, so to speak. But... Um, we would go to see Otis defeat Dolph Ziggler in about 8 minutes and 15 seconds in a match that I thought was really good. Um, these two dudes worked together very well, uh, again, for another short match to be able to tell the kind of story that they did in the match. I thought they all did a great job, and uh, so did all, you know, Mandy and, you know, Sonya and everybody. They did a really good job. Everything worked out about as well as I would expect it to. And it's it's kind of cool because, oddly enough, they're kind of making a star out of Otis which is a little bit unconventional, but I like it. They must really like this dude. It was one of my matches I was looking to because of the storytelling leading into it, uh, because due, due to the current circumstances, of course, a lot of storylines were weird, or like we said in the, the match that preceded this, just not, not even there and kind of cold. Uh, but they, they did a lot of good stuff with this, with you know Otis's romantic, um, you know everything going on with Mandy Rose and – and, and the stuff that Ziggler was doing, um, which is great as a heel, you know, especially in modern wrestling, like it, it got him over as a heel really good to be stealing Otis's girl and stuff. Uh, so, yeah, that built, built up a good match and both of these guys could go. And, and I like how they matched up just with Otis being like the little freaking bowling ball that he is, you know, and, and Ziggler being the, the bump artist that he's able to be. So there's a lot of good stuff in this. And, um, yeah, it, it was it was cool how it ended. And, you know, this is the, the big um, – reveal that there was like a hacker that exposed um uh, deville and, and everything so you know it was funny and entertaining and, and solid and of course i had to to mention that um the the kiss that they did because otis like picks mandy up at the end and they go to kiss and she's just like yeah puckering her lips like not even kissing them. <laughs> you know it's like yeah, come on get, well, at least get your I, I know you're not like a 
a Hollywood actress or whatever. She's like, just fucking go for it, you know? Yeah, like, why not? It's, yeah, I mean, old dead. You know, he's, like, trying to kiss her. She's just, like, puckered lips. It was it was funny. I just caught that. But, but yeah, yeah, it was it was a fun, you know, fun little uh, segment of, of Mania. And next up, we would see one of the more build-up matches of Mania season this year. This was probably the match that I was looking forward to the most coming into the weekend. Uh, Edge versus Randy Orton in a last-man-standing match, uh, which they have listed what I'm looking here is 36 minutes and 35 seconds, but I've also read that it was about 45 minutes total. Um, Oddly enough, these two would go on to have the second-longest WrestleMania match in history uh, only behind the Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart Iron Man match at WrestleMania 12. Um, yeah, a lot of punching and stuff here. I appreciate what they were trying to do. Um, I didn't hate this match like a lot of people did. I literally saw people saying that this was like the worst match of the weekend. Um, but, you know, it was just way too long. That's that's the worst thing that I could say about it. I thought both guys were working hard. They were trying to do stuff. Uh, one thing that uh, seemed to be somewhat controversial was a hanging spot they did in the gym uh, section of the Performance Center that a lot of people I saw online, and I even read an article about it uh, the day after, comparing it to the Benoit thing and how it was just bad timing because the Dark Side of the Ring Benoit episodes were just on. Um, I didn't really see it that way. I mean, I could see why people would feel that way, but it really didn't bother me during the match. Uh, frankly, I just thought it was a stupid spot that they that took up way too much time in the match. But, you know, it was cool to see Edge wrestling again in, in one way, shape, or form. I would have rather seen some of this be in the ring at least. Uh, and maybe have them fight around the building or something throughout the match and just make it up in the ring at the end. I think it's kind of stupid to do a match like this where it just goes backstage the way that it did. It's just a TV product. And, you know, and this is one instance where it does bother me. You're having a last man standing match going this long. You're not going to do any color. Nobody's going to bleed. So, you know, it just kind of is what it is. You know, I didn't hate it, but I certainly didn't love it. It was definitely way, way, way too long. We don't. We try not to go over too much before the podcast, especially on our specific segments. We know we're doing, uh, so we ran by like a little bit um, of our thoughts on Mania after we had watched it. And both of you, both you and I, had both said like the first thing we said about this match: it was good but too long. Uh, so you know, just off the bat, I'm with you there. But but yeah, I mean, overall, I, I liked it enough to to stick with it, of course, and, and it built up, you know, towards the end, um, you know, the huge spot from Edge off the. Um, the truck and um i had mentioned to you i saw on twitter because uh, edge's wife for those that don't know is, is beth phoenix she's a wb hall of famer former female um women's division uh champion and uh wb superstar and now commentator for nxt and she tweeted on there because uh, he's coming back from nine years off of injury for a broken neck and she's like yeah i thought you weren't wrestling like that anymore after he jumps off of a goddamn truck you know he's like sorry i guess um, so I, I enjoyed that, like as a side thing. But yeah, I mean, you know, the the controversial thing you brought up. I mean, that that just goes into the the current culture and social media. I, you know, it's it, it should be all about intent. You know, if they're like obviously doing a recreation of the Benoit thing or, or some shit like that, which they absolutely weren't, I can vaguely see going into that. But you know, even when I heard those rumblings, hey, Ed, I like looked into it. I'm like, how do people get that? Like, you know, and then you see, like, okay, I, like, you really have to dig to to get that 
you know, out of that. Like, I, I don't know. I, I just wanted to give my take on it. I thought that was ridiculous. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, the, the best part of the match was really the, the drama on top of like the semi truck thing at the end. Um, I kind of like how that played up and was kind of curious how they were going to end it. Uh, personally, I kind of noticed how there was kind of like a setup below that looked like it could be something where somebody was going to take a bump. I was thinking Orton because, you know, I didn't think Edge was going to do uh, another leap, was going to maybe get thrown off into like a setup WWE kind of cushiony you know, thing. And um, so I didn't know where it was going to go is my point. And then he finished it off with the concerto. So I, I thought that was a pretty cool, cool ending. And um, the only problem I had it had for it, like we were saying, was that uh, that length was just, <laughs> was just ridiculous for, you know, that kind of a brawl situation. So. Uh, two quick side notes. The one thing that I thought was really cool was when Edge did that elbow drop uh, when he was like hanging from the fence that was above like oh, that yeah. table. And it was that was just a cool spot. I mean, I, I give him credit for doing that. And that reminded me of shit you used to do back in the day. Which <laughs> yeah, exactly. Some UCW uh, and the other side note that I wanted to mention too, because I thought this was really cool. After WrestleMania, they had the WWE 24 uh, series, which is like a short form documentary that they do on the network. And they did one on edge and his whole comeback and everything. And I know that you also watch that too. And that's, I want to highly, highly recommend that to anybody that has a network because we, that blew me away. I thought it was amazing. It was one of the best ones that they've ever done. Yeah, I was going to say, I really enjoy those um, 24s. It's, it's it's always when it's well done, man, because especially if you're like obsessed with pro wrestling as I am to see all the ins and outs and behind the scenes stuff uh, if, uh, with the access that the WWE crew has to it to put together like a great documentary. Uh, most of them are very entertaining, if not all of them. And I have to say, man, this this was probably uh, my favorite one to date because there is such a, a real life storyline there for a guy that was forced into retirement like like. Like he says, like the whole time and emphasizes, like it's not about the retirement aspect of it. You know, I was going to need to retire soon anyway, but the way it happened, it wasn't on my terms. And that, you know, people might not understand that or whatever, but that was the biggest thing to him that stuck with him is that I want to retire on my terms. And and that was like the the most, the, the, the primary reason that he did bust his ass and as fate would have it, ended up getting cleared by the same doctor that put him out of wrestling was the doctor that cleared him. Another shout out to Pittsburgh, Dr. Maroon in Pittsburgh. So um, if, if you're into to documentaries, uh, we always say this, dude, it's another one. You don't even have to be into pro wrestling. It's that well done to just enjoy the, the real life story of, of Edge's comeback. It, it was a, a great 24, if not the best one yet. And uh, next up on the show, we saw Rob Gronkowski go on to defeat Mojo Raleigh to win the 24-7 championship in 18 seconds. Uh, you know, that's why I mentioned that the, the 24 seven championship changing hands the night before really didn't matter, but it does here. Now, Rob Gronkowski is the 24 seven champion, big deal. I don't really care at all, but it has gotten them some mainstream attention, uh, which I assume is the reason why they did it in the first place. Yeah. Like other workers were saying online with it. It's like, now, now we got Gronkowski, Rob Gronkowski, who hasn't even had a match yet doing fucking dives. Like, you know, come on. And um, I'm just with you. I'm just going to kind of brush by it. The, the 24-7 belt is just overall not my cup of tea, especially you know under the pandemic state and stuff. Um, just, yeah, not, not into it at all. Next, we had the WWE Raw Tag Team Championship up for grabs as the Street Profits, Angelo Dawkins, and Montez Ford 
would go on to defeat Angel Garza and Austin Theory with Selena Vega in six minutes and twenty seconds. Uh, and the big thing in this match, it was it was a solid match, even though it was pretty short, but it. It introduced Bianca Belair to the main roster, and it looks, uh, even judging from what we saw Monday night, that uh, she is going to be with the Street Profits from this point forward. Uh, Not too surprising. uh, Those who don't know, she's actually married to Montez Ford, and they have kids and the whole deal. So probably just a way to get uh, the wife on the road with them. And she's great. I'm a big fan of hers anyway, and she'll go with them perfectly. And again, another major, major move up. Uh, to the main roster. So with, you know, the main roster losing Charlotte, now they're getting Bianca Belair. I think that's what they did. They kind of swapped them out, which which makes sense. And eventually uh, that gives time between, um, as I alluded to earlier, uh, Charlotte and Bianca Belair, like full feud and, and big match. But yeah, this was a good match. Um, you know, kudos to Austin Theory. I, I knew a little bit of, about him from Evolve and like the indie scene and things like that. And, uh, you know, caught some of his stuff. And we have both said, hey, Ed, um, you know, he's billed as a bodybuilder, uh, albeit obviously with his weight, a much smaller bodybuilder. Uh, so he does have that look, but he's kind of vanilla as far as his character, but he's super young. So I'm sure that will develop because I definitely like him in the ring. And, and, and Angel as well. You know, Angel's real good in the ring. He has some sort of charisma. Uh, both just very young guys. Uh, but, yeah, just an overall uh, solid solid tag match. Nothing barn burning, but uh, I enjoyed it for what it was. And I will say this, too. I don't know if you watched Raw this week or not, but um, they did a just whole a segment bit. on Raw where they, they had a rematch, and then it turned into Bianca Belair versus Zelina Vega, and then it would eventually turn into a six-person tag with them. And I just wanted to say, like, that segment blew this away. Um, yeah. They were going nuts, and it was really good. It was a really good segment, I thought, on Raw this week. Much better than what we saw at WrestleMania. But, you know, for their spot on the, the card, you know, it was what it was. Nice. Yeah, I didn't get to that yet. I started a little bit of Raw, so I'll appreciate the heads up. I'll check it out. Yeah, I thought that was pretty good. It's definitely the, probably the only thing really worth watching on there. So, uh, next up was the fatal five way elimination match for the WWE SmackDown Women's Championship, which saw Bailey go on to keep her title in 19 minutes and 20 seconds over Lacey Evans, Naomi, Sasha Banks, and Tamina, and which to me was the longest drag of the entire two night show. Oh, for um, sure. For a match. For a match that lasted this long, I just did not care. I'm like, I'm not... They they did not make this interesting at all. Um, it was all kind of thrown together. It was just a throwaway match on WrestleMania, and I just thought that they gave it way too much time. They kind of did the, the storyline play between Sasha Banks and Bayley's friendship, but I mean, that's, this has been going on for literally years. You know, they did this when they were baby faces, and now they're heels, and they're teasing, you know, if they're going to break up or not. Uh, so there was that aspect of it leading up to the finish. And um, I could say Bailey's doing a decent job as a heel because I definitely don't like her. She definitely annoys me. And, and she's, you know, obviously she's a heel. She's doing it on purpose and she's a pro. Uh, so, you know, I'll give her credit for that. But, yeah, the match the match wasn't great. And, um, you know, with everything else, it was definitely on the, the bottom end of, of the entire two nights. Absolutely. So next up was the match. I think that a lot of people after night one were really waiting to see. Um, To me, it was a little bit of a clue that 
it wasn't going to be quite as good as the Boneyard match because uh, it was a little bit earlier in the night. Uh, well, what we had here was 13 minutes of the Firefly Funhouse match, which we saw The Fiend, Bray Wyatt, go on to defeat John Cena, which this was one of the weirdest things I've ever seen the WWE do. Um, I did appreciate parts of it. I thought it was really cool uh, that they did the whole Saturday night's main event thing. And uh, it was, the really cool part is they used the original music, which was yeah. kind of a surprise. Uh, but other than that, I mean, they did the WCW stuff with the NWO and all that, and that was cool. I got a kick out of a lot of it. I just would have appreciated somewhat of a match here. Um, so the first night being completely blown away by the Boneyard match, this didn't really have the same effect for me personally. I know a lot of people that did like it. I was pretty lukewarm on it. I thought it was okay. Um, they didn't get me with the theatrics this time. They did the night before. This time I was kind of just like, what is this? What is this? What is this? And then when it ended, I was like, oh, okay. I will give you the perspective of a six-year-old to start my take on it. Oh, he and, probably loved it. Well, no, because here's the thing. John Cena and Bray Wyatt are two of his favorite guys that have been in wrestling. Like, it's, you know, me and you as fans can attest. You have your guys and then and then you don't. You know, he's like, he was, when he was like a real little kid, you know, three or four, he's getting into this shit because of daddy, of course. Um, he was like huge on John Cena. Now, he still likes John Cena and that sort of thing, but he's not as big. And he absolutely loves The Fiend. So he was really, really looking forward to this more than anything. Like when it was leading up to it, it was all, you know, John Cena fiend. And then he really wanted to see Drew McIntyre and, and Lesnar more, more than uh, anything else. And huh. he was, he was just utterly confused by this head where I think the difference was That's with the true. Boneyard match. Think about that. Yeah. With the Boneyard match, it was still like a match, you know, I mean, not yes. obviously not a traditional, you know what I'm getting at. Like it was, they were still fighting, yep. you know, yep. and this one wasn't really a match. It was more of, um, just a straight up move. It was almost like an art house version of the quote unquote cinematic match. You know, it was like taking it to the next level where there was barely any even physicality, you know, towards the end, you know, the end uh, finale thing they did with him choking them out with the mandible claw and all that. Um, My take on it was, was, yeah, I liked the the creativity behind it. Um, It was funny seeing Cena do the NWO stuff that he did. You know, I definitely like the old school blue cage, you know, like you said, the, the old music and everything. So there was aspect that, the aspects of it that were really cool. It was original, entertaining, so I give it that. But um, in comparison to the Boneyard match, I like the Boneyard match a lot better because of what I was just saying. Like, at least at least it was still within the realm of professional wrestling, which is, yeah, why I think my six-year-old was like, but he was, the dude, I swear to God, we fell asleep on the couch, like, after Mania, I put on the edge thing. And my son fell asleep on the couch. So we just crashed on the couch. I watched the ed- edge thing went went to sleep with him. He wakes up. The first thing he says is, and first thing in the morning, Daddy, do we we don't know who won the Fiend John Cena? <laughs> 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 so, so that's the full take on it. So, but yeah, there, there was there was parts of it that was cool, and you know, kudos to them for for doing something different. You could say. I thought a friend of mine had the best way of explaining this. He said it was stupid but creative. Yeah, that's yeah, kind of how I was looking at it. That's a good way. It's kind of like that. Uh, next up, we had the WWE Championship matchup that everybody was waiting for, uh, which was our main event, but it would not be the last match of the night. Now, you had to watch Raw to see what happens. Now, I'll explain that in a second. So, next up, we saw Drew McIntyre defeat Brock Lesnar in four and a half minutes for the championship, 
in a match that I think surprised a lot of people. I don't think this is the match that we would have gotten had it been in front of, you know, 70 or 80,000 people. I think they would have given them a match. Um, it was mainly done just to put Drew McIntyre over. I was reading not too long ago that they said that uh, Brock Lesnar really likes Drew McIntyre and respects the dude. So obviously he wanted to do a good job for him in this match to put him over and make him the champ. Good for Drew McIntyre. I think the dude deserves it. Uh, it's kind of unfortunate under the circumstances. I kind of felt bad for him that like his big WrestleMania moment was in front of nobody. Um, it wasn't really a match to, to you know, scream and holler about it was definitely i thought better than the other uh major matchup being the universal title matchup but you know uh, i I expected drew mcintyre to win he did i didn't expect it to go this way so much uh but you know it just is what it is it was more of an angle so to speak than it was a match just like the uh wwe championship matchup on the other show again that's what i was going to say it's very parallel to what they did there like I said in my review of, of that match uh, from night one, was that it's almost like they skipped the first eight or nine minutes and, and you just see the, the last four minutes. You know, it was like off the bat, he did the, the kick, you know, got the, the one, two tees, you know, Lesnar kicks out, and they have five teases and, and uh, the Claymore to, to end it, like you said, like four minutes. You know, it's a four-minute match. How much can you say about a four-minute match? And to your point, uh, definitely kudos to – Drew McIntyre, and I'm in the same boat of just feeling bad for him because um, he's he, he was in – I forget uh, off the top of my head, again, just riffing without it in front of me. I forget who had said it on Twitter, but it was another wrestler that told like a quick story. Like um, I, I was in one of the podunk towns like six years ago with Drew McIntyre after he was out of WWE. You know, and now here he is with with you know back not only in WWE but with the biggest belt. You know, so it's like what a story kind of thing. So kudos to him, and it definitely sucks um, in this day and age. But there's nothing anybody uh, you know anything uh, we can do about it. So you know, at least he, he get, gets his title win, and, and that's in the books. Absolutely, and that's where the show went off the air. However, it was not the last match that Drew McIntyre would have that night. Uh, If you guys watch Raw on Monday, they would show you what happened after WrestleMania went off the air. As Drew McIntyre was giving an interview in the ring about winning the championship, none other than Big Show would come out uh, and try and goad him into a match, which he would eventually do. And Drew McIntyre got his very first defense in about 6 minutes and 25 seconds as he defeated the Big Show in his very first title defense for the first time in history as well. Uh, There was an immediate, uh, you know, defense right after um the only one close would be wrestlemania 9 it was a little bit different um but still uh definitely something different that they wanted to do i mean there was really no reason why they couldn't put it on the pay-per-view if they wanted to they just didn't um obviously they wanted to do something different for monday night raw um but that was two nights of wrestlemania i definitely think the first night was a lot lot better yeah i definitely liked night one better um two did have some some aspects to it, but you know, just from our breakdown, you could tell, um, you know, what what we were leaning towards. Um, I think there was three or four three star plus matches, in my opinion, on night one, as as opposed to um, you know much less than that for night two. But both both were entertaining, and I, I go back to the sentiment that I made uh, wrapping up the first WrestleMania, just to wrap up both parts in a whole. Uh, kudos to WWE. And again, it goes what I was thinking going in. I thought maybe it should be something postponed because WrestleMania is so sacred and things, but it, it alludes to another thing that I've mentioned in the past where 
we will get through all this. We will. And even if it's, you know, a year from now before next year's mania, uh, but especially like five years from now, you know, hopefully we're not dealing with pandemics five years from now. And we look back and it's just what makes WrestleMania 36 so special and so different, you know, especially say 50 years from now, it'll be in like, remember WrestleMania 36 wrestling with no crowd in front of um, zero audience uh, live during a pandemic. So uh, I think it was, it was something special that we might look back on and, to get over the no crowd aspect as a viewer, it, it took me a lot. It wasn't always there the entire shows, but you know, overall, I was entertained and I appreciate what WWE and the entire uh, roster and crew did uh, to pr- put on an actual full blown WrestleMania for two nights uh, during these times. Absolutely, man. I totally agree with pretty much everything you said there. Um, so that's our wrap up of WrestleMania 36 parts one and two. Hope you guys enjoyed that. And as we promised, we were going to talk about this as well. Um, it was technically the third episode, but it's the second week of, uh, Dark Side of the Ring on Viceland or Vice.com. And the second episode was on none other than ECW original New Jack. Uh, This was one of the ones that I was really looking forward to for the season. This episode did not disappoint. um, Showing New Jack's beginnings in Smoky Mountain Wrestling, moving to ECW, and all of the assorted incidents that we've seen through the years. I know you had a chance to watch this one too, man. Uh, I'm sure you like this one as much as I did. What's funny, because as we say, man, like you know, the the, the flow of, of what's real is is just from all our realms of interest. And so, to those we appreciate, yeah, if you're if you're listening, you're not as big on pro wrestling, and you're like, man, another pro wrestling segment. This is basically not pro wrestling. This is a different. Yeah, it's really level. not. This is almost like true crime. So stay tuned because it's it's fucking wild. So they show the beginnings of New Jack in Smoky Mountain Wrestling, and I don't know how much of this stuff you've been able to see or if you've seen ever, um, but I'm a big fan of this time period uh, with New Jack. Um, basically, Smoky Mountain Wrestling was centered in Tennessee, and it's one of the weirdest wrestling promotions of all time simply due to the fact that it, it was run in the mid-90s as a territory. And by that time, territories were pretty much dead. This is when independent wrestling was kind of just getting its footing. So Smoky Mountain was a small independent promotion run by Jim Cornette. But what a lot of people might not realize is the money man behind Smoky Mountain Wrestling is none other than one half of the people who started Def Jam Records. And he is superstar you know, record promoter Rick Rubin uh, was the money behind it. And uh, they ran this company because Rick Rubin's a huge wrestling fan. He hired Jim Cornette to basically be the face of the company and to run it and book it and everything, which they did. And it was a good old style Southern wrestling promotion. And when the the gangsters first came in, which was New Jack, it was Mustafa, as you guys may know from ECW, and even to, prior to that was D'Lo Brown, which a lot of people might not realize either. And um, they were heels. And they played up the race angle huge. Um, there's a famous promo that New Jack cut in Smoky Mountain where he would essentially uh, thank O.J. Simpson uh, for making there two less white people in the world that he had to worry about. Um, the stories are pretty legendary behind the scenes with you know a lot of the fans and stuff uh, you know, being racially motivated and trying to get after these guys, which was a thing. Uh, I don't think a lot of people recognize that in the territory days, being a heel was not like being a heel in wrestling. Now it was significantly dangerous. 
Um, and when fans took it seriously and thought the stuff was real, um, it meant that you would be met by a whole host of things like having cups of piss thrown at you, having batteries and rocks thrown at you, having a giant crowd of fans waiting at your car when you leave the building. Um, so in a lot of ways, heels in the old territory days had to be pretty badass dudes to just deal with that stuff. Um, this was a different era, of course, and, you know, they speak about that in the documentary. And by the way, if you guys have not ever seen New Jack in Smoky Mountain, or if you're not even familiar with Smoky Mountain Wrestling, uh, I highly recommend checking that out. It's all over YouTube. You can literally watch every episode they've ever made on YouTube right now. Check it out. Cause it's, it's super crazy. It's a time that will never be repeated. Um, in the, the segment talking about WrestleMania, we were just talking about how people were up in arms about, Edge and Orton just wrapping each other up in gym equipment and correlating with, with Benoit and stuff. Like, I mean, you got a dude sitting here saying that he's glad OJ killed two white people, basically. Um, another aspect of this, too, it's, it's really cool that Chris Jericho is the narrator. Um, yeah, he's you know, good that at helps it, too. At it. He's good at it. And, and Jim Cornette's just, just great to have involved. I think, you know, one of the producers, like, initially asked um, Jim Cornette, uh, like who New Jack is, and he responds by saying, if he was under oath in court, he wouldn't be able to say true or false to any of the stories New Jack has told about his upbringing. You know, yeah. he's like heard he's a bounty hunter and has justifiable homicides. Um, you know, Sandman gets interviewed, and just says he's just a tough motherfucker, and he will kill you if you mess with him, <laughs> which is basically true. And, and you know, in this time period too, with with what you were saying with all these controversial promos. And Jim Cornette even at the time puts a graphic up that says the gangsters comments and thoughts have nothing to do with Smoky Mountain wrestling and things like that to help build, you know, the, the healness. And they, uh, they took like the top babyface tag team, uh, Ricky Morton of the rock and roll express. And they, they recreate the Rodney King, but in reverse roles with the gangsters beating the shit out of him in the parking lot. <laughs> yep. What was in the <laughs> ring? Well, yeah, right. And then it like yeah, leads outside they, or something. I don't know. Yeah, they they bloodied the hell out of Ricky Morton. It pissed off the fans. Uh, it literally got to the point with Smoky Mountain where they couldn't really do much more with them anymore because it was just starting to be a problem. Um, and plus, they would eventually get a bigger money offer from Paul Heyman bringing the gangsters to ECW. This is where these these guys would make their, their bones, I guess you would say, and it's yeah. where New Jack became a household name in the wrestling world. Um, because of ECW's extreme and violent nature, they were 100% uh, suited for the company. And uh, I don't know about you, well, actually, I do know about you, but like I remember our very early days of you know, being able to watch ECW on a regular basis. We all fucking love the gangsters. Well, especially at the time, the owner of ECW, Paulie Dangerously, had a, a deal with like top record executives. So he could basically use whatever music he wanted. Well, you know, with, that's, been, the, that's been debated. <laughs> okay. But by any, by any means, the bottom line is they, it was like the first promotion to use like actual music as opposed to WCW in WWE since since the copyright law because that's a thing yeah once copyright like, WWF 
WWF was actually using real music in the 1980s. As yeah, like Hogan came out to I Have the Tiger originally. Yeah, so. absolutely. And, uh, you know, Queens, another one, Bites the Dust, is a famous theme song for Junkyard Dog. Right. There's a lot of them. But then the copyright laws started to change in the mid-80s, and that's when they really couldn't do it anymore. So they had to start making their own theme songs and yeah, stuff so like the that. Yeah, so the two... Well, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, well, I was going to say just by the 90s, it was common practice that every wrestling promotion kind of used their own generic stuff. And when ECW came along, that wasn't the case at all. And a lot of the theme musics are tied into the talents. And it's kind of weird because if you didn't live through the time or you don't have access to what the original broadcasts were, there's pieces of ECW history that's just missing because it's not the same without a lot of the music and that's absolutely true i mean i could we can attest to that specifically you know when the gangsters would come out to natural born killers from ice cube and dr dre whenever sandman would come out to enter sandman whenever you know rob van dam would come out to respect by pantera like these were anthems that were intertwined with wrestlers and when they went elsewhere and couldn't take those themes with them it was a significant difference to the characters yeah, and, and that's the thing. It just ECW was known as the gritty, realistic version. Like not only with the hardcoreness, obviously, Extreme Championship Wrestling, you know, which which was like their their main attraction in, in comparison to WCW, WWE, and the blood and everything else. But but that aspect too of the, the grittiness and the, the realness of the characters to have actual real music paired with it, just um, you know, because that's what I, that's that's the whole reason I brought it up was um, like you mentioned that the gangsters always came out. To natural or born killers and it just fit them so perfectly it just pumped you up so much during their matches and that was the other thing that was different from new jack and ecw that's never been done to this day it was a unique oh, thing yeah. with his character the music play his theme music natural born killers played his entire match it never turned off yep and that was something too that i remember specifically about going to ecw shows the environment when that song would come on would be weird. Like there's, there was a few instances, like usually whenever Sandman come out, everybody would just sing along to the song and it was cool. It was like a sing songy kind of thing. Like you would do in a concert, same thing kind of for Rob Van Dam. It was like more crowd participation, but when natural born killers came on and you were at the show, the mood of the crowd, everything changed. It was weird. The only thing that I can even equate to it to where me, maybe people would understand what I'm talking about is like the way that people have maybe experienced the undertaker's entrance. It was a lot different though. It wasn't like the same kind of feel, but it's the same kind of idea. Where yeah, it's like a comparison. The complete mood, yeah. Like the crowd was just, you know, like you're just awaiting something. And then when it would be new, Jackie essentially would run down with a garbage can. And then it was like all hell breaking loose, but it was a really different kind of experience live at a wrestling show than I'd ever had before. Like it's one of the few things that like in my head going to wrestling shows forever, there's a handful of things that stick out to me as being specifically suited to that thing. Like stone colds pop whenever WWF was in their prime, uh, the Hogan pop is something that sticks out to me. The Undertaker's entrance is something that sticks out to me as being special to see in person. And one of the other things that I said, along with Sandman and Rob Van Dam, is that New Jack Gangsta's entrance. It was a different kind of vibe. There's not many... The, I've just named all the things in wrestling that are like that. And no matter how great the dudes were that I'm talking about that didn't do that, 
it didn't matter. It's just they didn't have that one aspect. Like, Ric Flair's one of the greatest of all time, but whenever he came out, it wasn't like this big mood would wash over the arena. It was, oh, cool, it's Ric Flair. But everyone I just mentioned in their own special way had that way of, like, and Hogan and Austin are different because they were just such huge stars that the pops were crazy. Um, it was noticeably different. I think The Rock kind of had that too a few times, yeah. if I remember correctly, like when I went to a show. But like, do you know what I'm talking about? Like people that I could, like, I could say like, dude, I don't know anything about wrestling, but you've been all these shows. Like, who are the guys that stick out to you and why? And that would be one of the things I think you would probably mention is like the entrances and the special kind of like things like that. Oh, and the big test to it too is, and that's what kills me is somebody that loves the network and loves ECW. I find myself not watching ECW as much because of this, because WWE Mm -hmm. on the network doesn't own the rights to the music that they all used. So it's just different, especially like New Jack's music on there is like this shitty, goofy, like... It's like a bootleg version of Natural Born Killers. Yeah, and it just doesn't work. It's just different. So like I'll I'll go on there for for my ECW watching and, and, you know, you just want to get to the matches, you know, you can still watch the matches, obviously. But yeah, as far as the entrances and the vibe, the, the music, um, you know, and you'd think it in overall in wrestling, like it might be a smaller factor, but with ECW, man, it, it made all the difference. And, and again, it goes back to with new Jack in particular, his music playing the entire time. So you have that shitty, you know, wannabe song on the WWE network playing during all his matches. It just is not the same thing. You know, it, it kind of correlates with your point. Yep. I totally agree. Obviously, in the uh, documentary itself, they would go on to show the most infamous moments of New Jack's career, three of them specifically, one of which is known as simply the Mass Transit incident. Another one was a run-in with a veteran hardcore wrestler named Gypsy Joe. And another one uh, was the last one that they showed on the show, which is specifically known as the New Jack stabbing incident. And I actually just completely lopped over another one the whole Vic Grimes saga um now I guess we could start here at the beginning but the mass transit uh deal was the first one this was still in it was I want to say like 97 uh or so maybe 98 in ECW um there was a kid named Eric Goulas uh who would go on to play a character called mass transit Uh, He was a fill-in on a card when Axel Rotten didn't show up. He filled in for him in a tag match against the Gangsters, where his tag team partner was Devon Dudley. And what essentially happens is Eric Koulis ended up being 17 years old. He lied about his age when he came to the show. So he should have never been booked in the first place, but he was. And there was an actual incident between him and New Jack where he went up to New Jack not knowing... Uh, the, what do you call it? The, the, yeah, the wrestling etiquette, um, told new Jack that he wanted him to cut him just basically didn't respect new Jack's position as a veteran and new Jack went into the match and boy, did he ever cut him? They show the footage in the uh, documentary, but it really doesn't even do the justice of the other video that I've seen of this through the years. He like half scalped Um, him. Yeah, it's brutal. I mean, this dude's bleeding every fucking where. Um, It ended up getting New Jack in a lot of legal difficulty, uh, which uh, ended up basically nothing happened uh, because during the court proceedings, Paul Heyman would go on the stand and would turn on the acting gears that he was pretty good at, to be honest with you, and uh, turned it into a situation where he said Eric Kulas called him the N-word. And I think that a lot of people were just kind of over the whole thing to begin with. Um, Of course, 
you know, there's a lot of people to blame with this incident, mainly Paul Lee, uh, because he should have never allowed it to happen in the first place. And also New Jack, because there was really no reason for him to go completely overboard the way that he did. This is one of the few incidents here where I would actually say that New Jack is fully to blame. Um, you know, of course, the kid should have never tried to lie to get on the show, but he's a kid. That's the main reason why. Yeah, it doesn't Jack mean you cut his head off. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we got, we we can't um, bring this part up and not mention. You know, what started all of this was that Paul E had interest in this Matt Transit kid to begin with because he saw footage of this huge wrestler that was Mass Transit, and of course he doesn't know the age or anything that was wrestling two midget wrestlers. And it was actually like an entertaining match. You know, Paul Lee's like, man, this, this big dude's bumping for these these midget wrestlers. And um, the, the one main midget wrestler that, that's on the documentary, Tiny the Terrible, he was a character in and of itself as well um, to be brought in with, with Matt Transit, which, of course, the crazy circus that is pro wrestling. Not only do you get this 400-pound teenager lying about his age called Matt Tran- Mass Transit basically accidentally, um, you know, th- making new Jack like all pissed off at him. But of course he's like with these two midget wrestlers to boot. And I kind of felt like they added in this part to the documentary. It wasn't really a big part of the story. Yeah. Just to lighten um, it up maybe. <laughs> but, well, I also think too, because they crazy. couldn't get any, they couldn't get anybody on Eric Coolis's side to appear on the show. Yeah. Uh, his parents turned down the invitation and unfortunately, uh, he passed away years ago from a heart attack. Um, so, you know, they couldn't really get his side. So I yeah, felt yeah, like gastro, this guy on the show. To, yep. He had difficulties from that re- resulting in his death. So I think that they got this guy on here to kind of represent that side of the story a little bit. Um, obviously it would move on to the Vic Grimes incident, which if you guys are familiar with ECW, uh, there was a matchup where New Jack was in with the Baldies, one of which was Vic Grimes, where they were up on scaffolding and he would basically fall on New Jack's head, um, because he didn't want to do it in the first place. And then it would lead to a, a year or so later with these two guys having a rematch of sorts in XPW in California. And it was the highest scaffold match of all time, which resulted in New Jack basically tasing uh, Vic Grimes a handful of times and then throwing him off the scaffolding, almost resulting in his death. Um, It's literally one of the craziest fucking things you've ever seen. If you've never seen it, the best way I could explain it is if you've ever seen Mick Foley fall off the hell in a cell, this might be worse. Um, Well, don't forget to mention, he, he tased him not as a work. In wrestling, he didn't even tell him that he had a taser. Yes. He tased him for real so that he would be numb, and he lost his legs and threw yep. him off. And like Jim Cornette says, he should have died. It's a, a miracle that he did it. And the only – the serious injury that he had from that was a dislocated uh, ankle. So, he, you know, because yep. if you see the footage, he bounces like a rag doll, this huge rag doll just off the, the ring ropes. Like, did he – I don't even think he broke the table. He, like, went – like – Went through it, but he, he didn't even break it. it. <laughs> he flipped and like it's kicked insane. one of them or something. It was crazy. Yeah, you gotta see uh, it to believe it, really. But it's it's really like if you watch the actual uncut video of it too, it's super disturbing because like they thought he died. Like they're freaking out. They're like everybody's freaking out. The crowd's freaking out. Like it's <laughs> yeah. a bad bad scene. Um, obviously, from there, there was some more stuff in the documentary, including the way that. Uh, they came up in the business. There's a disturbing story about how Mustafa used to 
roll blunts of pencil shavings and get high off lead. So he kind of acted like a lunatic, and that was New Jack's tag team partner in the Gangsters. Um, you also seen the Gypsy Joe incident, which is pretty disturbing. Uh, Gypsy Joe at the time was, I believe, 71 years old. He's kind of an old-school tough guy in the business. And the thing about him is that he kind of no-sells a lot of stuff. Like, you really got to hit him in a match to get him to, you know, to sell stuff. And that was not previously discussed between him and New Jack. So when he proceeded not to sell, New Jack proceeded to beat the living shit out of him with pretty much anything he could find. A bat covered in barbed wire, chairs. The crowd was kind of turning on New Jack at this point. Uh, And it's just a bad scene overall. And this is one of the most disturbing things I've seen in wrestling. I'm fully aware of who Gypsy Joe is. It's amazing that he wasn't killed or permanently (laughs) maimed in this match. But it's another bad strike against New Jack in his career. I don't feel like it was New Jack's fault. I feel like this is just a misunderstanding that turned into a terrible situation. Probably exacerbated by the fact that New New Jack's favorite hobby while wrestling is doing tons of cocaine. Yeah, he's he takes bumps so he can go take bumps. Although he's not really the one taking the bumps <laughs> in most of his matches. It's true. Other than throwing himself off balconies, it's really like him just beating the shit out of people. But yeah, I mean, you know, who else can say, you know, like we said, justifiable homicides, throwing a guy off a scaffolding, breaking his skull off a scaffolding, doing cocaine between before matches, cutting off some 17 year olds in front of his head. And now hitting a 73 year old with a bat wrapped in barbed wire. (laughs) That's where we're at. And guess what folks? That's not, there's more. The last segment that they showed in the documentary, or on the show, I should say, was uh, basically a nameless wrestler. It's it, His name is irrelevant. He's never done anything Hunter, else Hunter in the Red. business. Yeah, Hunter Red. There you go. So they had a match where he proceeded to stiff New Jack a few times, which resulted into New Jack tying him up around the ropes, pulling a knife out of his pants, and essentially stabbing the guy about nine times <laughs> in the back of his neck. Which is some of the most disturbing shit I've ever seen in a wrestling show, let alone anything. Um, and the sad thing is, I guess this is the best. I don't blame New Jack for getting pissed and doing something about it. It's just the degree of doing something about it is what I would have issue with. Um, the dude was an idiot, should have never did what he did to New Jack. But then again, I can't really defend somebody stabbing the shit out of someone nine times. Um, which would eventually lead to legal proceedings that would be dropped by Hunter Red uh, on the premise that New Jack would take him around the country and tour with him, and they could work it into an angle, and New Jack promptly never saw the guy again once he dropped the charges. So that is the life and times of fucking New Jack. Holy shit. <laughs> That's the biggest problem with New Jack. I get the respect in wrestling, and you know, especially as a veteran and the hierarchy and things like that. But in all honesty, I mean, we all have to admit here, like the things that he's saying that he was offended by, and, and I get throughout this, he says about being called the N word, feeling a lot of this, and I get it, but it's not, it's not like the guys even doing that to him in the specifics. As far as the N word stuff, it's more the, the crowd, and then of course, like like you mentioned, um, Mass Transit's dad and all that, and it, it's just like these little slights that it's like, okay, you know, like like we were saying with the the, the old guy uh, Gypsy Joe. Uh, you know, I think he just said like, okay, new Jack, you know, before the master talk about what they're here to do. And he's just like, you know, follow me. 
And meanwhile, how hypocritical is that? It's like the dude's like a 73-year-old vet. He's just saying, follow you. So if you're getting disrespected by younger guys, how do you feel disrespected by the 73-year-old guy telling you to follow him? You know what I mean? And then to like beat the living shit out of him over that. So um, I, I know, guess it's, it's, it's just because he was the bigger name. Yeah, that's the just, best just, way but, I can it's, it's it's almost unexplainable. Like put it this way, I think you'll agree with me here. You can't really explain this stuff to people that don't understand the full inner workings of how wrestling is. We're not defending it. It's just the specific mindset and manner that these guys go about having. And you either know the rules or something terrible is most likely going to happen to you. And it's just the varying degree. I'm not saying if you do some of the things that these guys did, you're going to get stabbed. But you might get punched in the face or get a move put on you that you you know might hurt you pretty badly or something like that. It's a difficult world to understand, and I completely, fully, 100% understand why. It's it's a goofy business. Oh, so as, as far as New Jack goes specifically, like the great philosopher Rick James said, Cocaine's a powerful drug. Absolutely. Because, so, I mean, the dude, that, he self-admits that. He's coked up this entire – every one of these stories. He's like, yeah, well, I was doing coke again. He basically says that he wants to die doing cocaine in his wheelchair. So end it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, you know, you're dealing with a specific personality, too. I also think that a lot of this stuff – uh, is just perpetuated. I don't think that this is really how New Jack is. I explained this to somebody recently talking about this, and I said, New Jack is just like anybody else. He's working a gimmick. Um, and I feel like there was a time period where New Jack realized that his drawing ability and his relevance in the business wasn't what it once was. So he carved out, you know, pun intended, uh, an area for himself as being this maniac. And that's what his draw was for a. a period of years after ECW had passed. So, I mean, those days are pretty much over for New Jack. He doesn't wrestle a whole lot anymore. Um, he has a ton of health problems and stuff like that. Physically, he's pretty banged up, which isn't surprising if you're familiar with his career and, you know, his working style. But, you know, it is what it is. That I, I thought Dark Side of the Ring overall was really, really good, um, as it usually is. It didn't disappoint. Um, it was definitely an entertaining look at the life and, as they say, crimes of New Jack. Um, I definitely recommend the episode, as I have every single one that I've seen so far. And uh, and I'm looking forward to them You know, moving on with the next one being on the WWF Brawl for All tournament from uh, 1998. And just to, to end my take on it, um, like uh, listeners that have been here week in and week out, and to the new listeners listening now, um, we had brought up a, a personal story as, as we do when it, when the time's right, uh, that I had met new Jack personally, uh, back in the day. And I had told a family friend that was texting me during dark side of the ring about like how crazy it is. And I, I texted him, like, I actually met new Jack and, and drank with him at Sandcastle for a while. And he's like, what the fuck did you guys talk about? You know, when he's watching this thing and, and like Ed was saying, like a lot of it was a gimmick, man. He was a cool guy. And we were just bullshitting about why, why he was in town for a possible wrestling project. And I was picking his brain about some of his matches. I told him I was on the indie scene for, for a small period of time and things like that. And, and I'm sure the free beers, because I was you know buying him a, a beer each round. I think I bought him three beers. I'm sure that helped too. Uh, you know, des destitute independent wrestlers with, with three beers will keep him around. But, but yeah, I mean, I think that he's like a bear, man. You know, if you don't cross him or fuck with him, he's not going to fuck with you. Um, and I had a, I had a cool time with him, man. It's a, a great experience. So you, you never know, but even, even me watching this, it's not like, you know, we're, we're best friends obviously or anything. I was like, man, he's kind of a despicable person in, in a lot of ways. 
Yeah, he's not the best. I'll say that much. Uh, I, I appreciate him for what he was. Um, not really somebody that I wanted to have too many dealings with, and I've had some strange ones, to say the least, with New Jack through the years. Um, you know, I, I tell a story of a one time you were at this show, but we went to an IWC show years ago where he fought Balls Mahoney, and it was a fucking bloodbath. And there was a point after the match where New Jack, for whatever reason, just wandered out in through the crowd right where we were sitting, and we all kind of just spread yeah, out because yeah, he's like bleeding, bleeding everywhere. everywhere. <laughs> and, I mean, he walked right past me, and I'm like, that's one of the fucking scariest human beings I've ever seen. Like, just this dead-ass look in his eyes, bleeding from his head everywhere. It's just a weird image that stuck with me. But, you know, I, I was a fan of the gangsters back in the 90s in ECW, and I, I obviously love their stuff in Smoky Mountain. So uh, this documentary was, or this show was definitely something that I thought lived up to the hype, and I definitely recommend this episode a lot. Really good. And like we said earlier, the whole thing ends with um, one of the producers or whoever's interviewing them. Like, so if they did a, a movie about you, New Jack, how would it end? And he's like, I, I'm in a wheelchair doing cocaine and I die, <laughs> however he puts it. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, classic shit, man. Very, very entertaining. And, um, you know, the Vice Series, Dark Side of the Ring. Uh, again, albeit as, as depressing as it is for a, a part of entertainment that I always enjoyed, it's the reality of it and a lot of these guys' stories. And kudos to the, the documentary team because um, they're getting some of the highest ratings Vice ever has, if, if not the highest. It's a great show each week, so always looking forward to new ones. Absolutely, man. Kudos to Evan Evan Husney and Jason Eisner, the director. Uh, Evan's the producer. I actually do know him a little bit, so uh, I'm pretty proud of the work these guys are doing. They're doing a great job. So that's it, guys. That's our wrestling segment. Thanks for sticking in there with us. Uh, we got to pay some bills. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the new Richard Stanley movie in detail, Color Out of Space, starring Nicolas Cage. So stick around. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real Podcast. This is Ed from the What's Real Podcast. What would Dad do? Suppose Dad was going to create the greatest hangout spot in the world. Would he have more than 100 craft beers? Check. Hard to find sweet seasonal brews on tap? Check. Juicy burgers seasoned with goodness and grilled to perfection? Check. Signature dogs and beloved favorites on the menu? Check. Comfortable for friends and family, even your little brother? Check. Welcome to Dad's. Well, that's what Dan, Steve, and Eric set out to do. Of course, the trio had spent some quality years working together at a certain hot dog and beer joint in Monroeville. That's when they came to the conclusion that they could shape a bar and restaurant with the beer they love, the food they love, and the people love they hang out with. So, Dad's was born. In its first year, Dad's has become a favorite hangout for many who stumbled in for the very first time. We hope to be your favorite spot, too. Check us out on the web at dadspub.com. Give us a call at area code 412 856-5666 located at 4320 Northern Pike Monroeville and 1050 Brayton Avenue Pittsburgh PA that's dads and we're back here on the show uh, next up as we promised is a full look at the brand new Richard Stanley movie starring Nicolas Cage Color Out of Space uh, if you're unfamiliar with this this is a HP Lovecraft uh, famed horror author adaptation 
Uh, I'll give you guys a quick breakdown. Uh, the Gardner family moves to a remote farmstead in rural New England to escape the hustle of the 21st century. They are busy adapting to their new life when a meteorite crashes into their front yard, melts into the earth, and infects both the land and the properties of space-time with a strange, otherworldly color. To their horror, the family discovers this alien force is gradually mutating every life form that it touches, including them. Um... This is something that I was really looking forward to. Uh, I'd known that it was coming for a while, and I'm already a pretty big fan of director Richard Stanley. He made movies like Dust Devil and Hardware. Uh, they're really outside of the box. This guy's like a visionary filmmaker. And when I heard he was doing a Lovecraft adaptation, I thought he was like the perfect guy to do it. And uh, I'll be honest, I didn't think this movie disappointed at all. Um... There's not a whole lot of hammy stuff from Nicolas Cage, even though there is some of that in there. Um, I didn't think it was something like Mandy, where it was just like this whole thing on and of itself with him. Um, I thought he they really did a good job visually with this one. I thought the CG effects were really well done. Um, I thought that everything, the lighting, the colors, and everything in this was fantastic. Um, the story is naturally weird, as most Lovecraft stuff does, but this, to me, is one of the best H.P. Uh, Lovecraft uh, cinematic adaptations that I've ever seen. Um, I was a huge fan of this all the way around. I thought it was a pretty good performance by Nicolas Cage. Um, but, yeah, all around, this one just was really a shot out of the park for me. Yeah, the, vi the visuals were probably my biggest aspect that, that caught my eye. Um, I'm, I'm a big H.P. Lovecraft fan as well. Um, I, surprisingly for me, as, as we always talk about being cinephiles, I haven't seen um, Hardware or Dust Devil to this point or any of his other ones, to be honest. So I was looking into that because I know you and a couple of our other friends that are into the genre pieces like horror movies and, and the borderline ones like, you know, I guess Hardware is like um, sci-fi horror in, in a way. Yeah. Um, yep. So I was definitely always interested in watching them, just never got to it. And I, I know that how much you guys respected um, Stanley as a filmmaker. So, yeah, with that combination uh, of uh, your guys' thumbs up towards Stanley as a director with, with this being an H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, um, it's based off of, what, a novella or a short story? Short story, yeah. Yeah, so I was, I was very interested in it. And, um, yeah, it did not disappoint um, I'm a big Nick Cage guy, although with all the, the stuff he does, especially nowadays after he pissed away his money on like um, Tysanus, Tyrannosaurus uh, Rex Skulls and um, original Superman 1 comic books and shit like that, he, he needs to loot, does uh, a lot of crazy shit now. Um, not too long ago, I, I actually gave a, a chance at this movie, a uh, newer film that he was in called Primal, where he's like a big game hunter that captures a uh, rare jaguar and i couldn't get through it like the jaguars such bad cgi you know even for 2020 and i get it's low budget um it was just terrible so my point is i, I like nick cage in certain roles but he can definitely be hit and miss and stanley brings out classic nick cage in this which i love you know especially as the the story progresses with with the meteorite it's, it's starting to drive him crazy and things like that and um you know again the the biggest um take i had was it's, it's just so so well visually shot at, at their little farmhouse area and then the the meteorite that lands is has this uh purpleness which is those that listen to the podcast goes per 
perfectly with the J, purple view. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I really enjoyed that. And I, I definitely enjoyed the build up to it. It's one of those, the, the storytelling aspect, and it's one of those movies where you just want to see where it's going consistently, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it's, it's really cool in the way that, you know, I thought they were like, that's one of the things that's a problem, I think, in the past with a lot of the Lovecraft stuff. And I, I've used the same kind of connotation for Clive Barker. It's like their works are so otherworldly, like their actual writing and what they write about is just so like it's very hard in a lot of context to even put it in a visual medium. Um, so a lot of their work doesn't translate very well to the screen uh, because they don't have the budgets that they need to do it the correct way. Um, but Richard Stanley, I thought, did a fantastic job with that. It's one of the best jobs I've ever seen somebody do with his work. So I give a lot of credit to him there. It's something that he clearly took seriously. And I was actually really pleased to, to read recently that he is making a trilogy of Lovecraft adaptations. So after seeing nice. this one, I didn't know that. I'm com- yeah, like I'm all for it. Like I hope That's they awesome. get made because I, I think that he's really the right guy to do it. Um, Something that a lot of people might not realize because, you know, the movies that we named are pretty oddball movies and a lot of people probably haven't seen them. But if you guys remember in the 1990s, there was a remake of The Island of Dr. Moreau uh, with Marlon Brando playing the Doctor. And uh, while the movie didn't end up being this way, it was originally supposed to be directed by Richard Stanley. Um, He quit the movie and there's a fantastic documentary about this, which it's amazing what he did where he was kicked off this movie and this was like his dream project. This is the one movie that he wanted to make more than anything else. He was so worried about this project that after leaving, he was really in tight with a lot of the crew and special effects people and stuff. And a lot of the people that worked on the movie were pissed off whenever he quit. They weren't mad at him. He was essentially, he quit because the producers were just becoming increasingly more difficult to deal with. And, what he did was he managed to sneak on the set and he's in the movie as a character in full makeup. So no one knew it was him except for the special effects guys. So they, they did this to get him back on the set and he was there because he wanted to oversee what they were doing to make sure, you know, he was on board with what they were doing because he cared about the project so much. I, I won't tell you anything else because the documentary is so good. It's unlike anything you've ever seen. But, I mean, I think Richard Stanley is a genius. Um, I really hope that he gets further opportunities to make stuff that he really wants to make because I think he's one of the few filmmakers in the world today that is just so special visually that I, th- I really want to see him get the opportunity to make more stuff. Speaking of that, as we said, I, I have uh, in my Amazon right now hardware. I've, I've wanted to see it for so long, and this made me just really focus on, on checking it out, especially after seeing how... I think you'll like that one. I think there's a, the Dust Devil. I think is better, but it's made on a such smaller budget. So I think there's less people in the world that would appreciate it. And Hardware right. is a good movie. Don't get me wrong. It's not something that's gonna like blow your mind. But I think there are a lot of things about it that will blow your mind. If that makes sense. Yeah. No. For sure. And, and yeah, just to summarize uh, my take on Color Out of Space. Again, the, the Cajun is coming out towards the end. Just put it over for me. You know, I'm basically watching by myself, cheering in my head, like, yeah, full Richard Stanley got a full on Cage going, and and it, it fits perfectly with with uh, the film. You know, because because that's the, the problem with Cage. He could just be like too bonkers 
where it kind of takes you out of it in certain roles and things like that. And it, it suited the, the situation that happens. You know, we, we won't divulge any any spoilers in this one, but, um, you know, to, to get some full cage on and just a crazy, wild, wacky ending. And, um, you know, I like how the one character that gets through all of it kind of sums up the experience at the end, you know, um, like to sum up the story and kind of conclude it. I, I, I enjoyed that ending, you know, when he's kind of on that dam uh, with the cigarette. So, yep. so yeah, o- overall, um, great experience. Um, the Jays take as we do the five star scale, uh, I'll give it three. Okay. I, I really enjoyed this one. As I mentioned, also, I wanted to mention too, in a really funny and, and good role, uh, Tommy Chong is in this one. It's kind of like this stoner. I can't believe guy. we didn't bring up Chong. Good call. Um, he's really good in it too. And, uh, you know, I really enjoyed this one. This is right up my alley out of five stars. I give this one four, um, really enjoyed it. I'm a huge Richard Stanley fan. So if you guys want to check that out, um, I do know that it's going to most likely be streaming on shutter. If you guys have that, uh, the Blu-ray and DVD are out available. I actually picked up a copy at Walmart, uh, for, or I'm sorry, at uh, target, I think for 15 bucks. So I was definitely happy and I was, I was trying to do it. I actually, didn't get to it but there's a making of documentary on here that uh, Richard Stanley I seen say himself that people should check that out too and I definitely want to do that eventually too so I nice. still have the disc sitting out here because I'm going to pop that in and probably watch that at some point here with the downtime yeah I have that as well check it out so that's it for color out of space guys we're going to take a quick break and we come back we're going to debut our brand new segment that's right thursday night prime makes its wonderful debut in a segment we are super excited about and we're going to be talking about our very first movie in that segment the uh, legendary so to speak no contest we'll be back right after this on the what's real podcast This is Ed for the What's Real podcast for Natrona Bottling Company. Over a century after Ed Walsh opened the doors, Vito Gerasoli, the Sultan of Soda, runs Natrona Bottling. Possessing the same love and care for the brand and its methods as Paul did, Vito gave new life to a once-thriving company. Vito has kept the core values of Natrona Bottling alive while placing an emphasis on current trends. Today, Vito Gerasoli, Steve Vokic, and Mary Jane Zdilla endure to operate Natrona Bottling Company just as it did 70 years ago. Using the same vintage machinery and our signature pinpoint carbonation, we continue to mix every batch by hand, giving you a genuine American soda pop. We strive to make sure each bottle receives the same level of attention as it did back in 1904, using 100% pure cane sugar, just as we always did way before it was trendy. We produce authentic, true American soda pop. Natrona Bottling Company, 91 River Avenue, Natrona, PA, 15065. Phone number 724-224-9227. You can check us out online at www.natronabottling.com. And we are back here on the show, and we are bringing to you uh, our very first segment of a segment that we're pretty excited about ourselves. We're calling it Thursday Night Prime because it is based strictly off the old uh, primetime series on HBO, HBO's Thursday Night Prime, where they would show a whole gluttony of action and weird skin flicks and stuff like that. And the first movie that we're going to be talking about is from 1995. It's from director Paul Lynch, uh, who, oddly enough, has tons of horror credits under his belt. Movies like Prom Night, Humongous, um, obviously Blood and Guts, and 
you know, just really weird, oddball movies. Um, some stuff that I'm a fan of, but the movie is called No Contest, and it stars none other than Cinemax skin queen uh, Shannon Tweed, also Robert Davey uh, from The Goonies, and of course, uh, dirty mouth comedian, a guy that I know that we both get a kick out of, Andrew Dice Clay. Uh, this is the basic breakdown of the movie. Uh, a beauty contest turns into a hostage situation when the Miss Galaxy competition is taken over by a gang demanding a ransom of diamonds. Sharon, a kickboxing actress, is the host of the show and the thorn in the terrorist side. In the movie, of course, we have Shannon Tweed playing the kickboxing actress Sharon. We have Andrew Dice Clay playing our main bad guy, Oz. And, of course, we have Sh- Sergeant Crane played by Robert Davey. Uh, as one of the heroes, he plays the bodyguard to one of the younger uh, beauty pageant uh, contestants whose father is also a senator. And we even have, as one of the bad guys, Rowdy Roddy Piper in a great role that I thought. And uh, yes, the movie may be a ripoff of Die Hard, but I'll be honest with you, I fucking loved it. This movie's a lot of fun. Um, of course it's a B movie, but Andrew Dice Clay hams it up as the main bad guy. Robert Davey plays the old grizzled veteran guy that walks with a cane, who is a, a bodyguard, as I mentioned earlier. And, uh, and Shannon Tweed actually does a pretty good job in this one. There's some humor, there's some good action, there's some really bad fight scenes. Um, but overall, man, I thought this one was entertaining as shit, just as I did when I saw it back in the day on Thursday Night Prime. Very coincidental that we didn't even talk about this um, parallel situation here with Shannon Tweed in bringing up Ring Heat uh, because my character in Ring Heat has a, uh, a sex scene with her, which is a story for another day, which I know we've mentioned on a previous podcast. We've got to bring that up when we bring up Shannon Tweed, give Ring Heat some props there. <laughs> but, it's, dude, it's almost like I thought of, of it like this in a way, hey, Ed, seeing this with um, the four main players – you know, you have Shannon Tweed, Robert Davey, Andrew Dice Clay, who in this, um, you know, the opening credits, I guess he was maybe trying to do a more serious thing or whatever. Maybe his agent talked him into it. There was no Dice. It was just Andrew Clay as Oz, you know. And then, uh, yep. of course, Roddy Piper. I felt like they were maybe like the producers are like, all right, we got Tweed, Davey, Clay, and Piper. Let's all denote them in these Dice, and we're just going to roll the Dice, and whatever rolls they land on, they're going to play. You know, <laughs> it's like – Shannon Tweed could have been like the the, the right hand man to Andrew Dice Clay's uh, villain. Robert Davy could have been the villain. Andrew yep. Dice Clay could have been Davy. Piper could have been the hero. You know, yeah, it could have went anyway. Chain. Yeah, I was thinking of that, but but yeah, man, that, that's why Thursday Night Prime is, is going to be a fun segment because it's it's movies like this and uh, this fit in so well to to do this as the first um, subject of said segment. Uh, just like you said, a blatant diehard ripoff. I mean, I don't even think. They even cared. I think they basically said putting this together, you know, the whole blueprint of this film is going to be a Die Hard-esque uh, heist movie where these terrorists take over a, a penthouse. But then, you know, it throws in their own kind of take on it, you know, the, the beauty pageant aspect of it in, in the diamond heist part. You know, and then, of course, you got the kind of um, the, the bumbling one of the group that, like, fucks everything up, the, the Vic character, Nicholas yep. Campbell. He wants to yep. bang Tweed and you know fucks everything up because of his you know his hard on. So you know you have all the the classic tropes that we look look for in, in B action movies and in our subjects of uh, 
of the Thursday Night Prime segment, man. You know, like you said, terrible fight scenes. You know, I, I think I texted you as I was watching it. Uh, one of the particular fight scenes, Roddy Piper's like the right hand uh, man of the terrorists of Clay's character, and he and Tweed fight in the kitchen towards the end. And I'm like, oh, Great it's, scene. It's Shannon, yeah, Shannon Tweed versus Roddy Piper, last man standing, or yeah. Tim Falls anywhere match, you know. Um, and, and and in particular, Shannon Tweed and, and Andrew Dice Clay's fight is just um, it's just laughable. I, I think some of the fights we did in, in Ring Heat, or maybe all of them, uh, were better or at least comparable. But but yeah, you, you kind of look past that stuff. And, and again, man, as a as a true film goer, if you're going into this expecting the the real diehard. You know, some cutting edge, well put together. You know, all all top tier A list actor kind of thing. Uh, this this isn't that kind of movie. So you should be going in just ready to have fun. Um, you know, classic popcorn one, man. I, that's what I did. I think it was a Sunday afternoon. You know, had some popcorn and pretzels and just threw this flick on for uh, roughly ninety minutes. Um, and and I thoroughly enjoyed it, man. Again, it was a it was a great subject for the first ever uh, Thursday night say it's time Thursday night prime segment here on What's Real. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think it was a fun movie. It's entertaining. Uh, of course, some of the acting is hammy and stupid, but that's part of the fun. Um, you know, the Roddy Piper character I love because they try and basically make him like the Terminator, essentially. Um, Shannon Tweed's actually pretty good in this. I mean, they don't give her a ton of great stuff to do, but, like, she does good enough. And it's funny, too, because I saw this. I was looking up something on the movie. And it's clearly they tried to do one of the old video store tricks because one of the the headlines on this or one of the taglines on it is a roller coaster ride of full frontal high octane action, which is hilarious because if you've ever seen another Shannon Tweed movie, you understand where the correlation comes from there. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I, I know like the the tagline for it, um, which cracked me up because it, it would have been like. Like, like real solid if they like went through it, but it was like, it's like no rules, no mercy, no escape. And just stops there instead of saying no contest at the end, you know, which I guess that's like the point of the con, the the tagline is like, you know, the title finishes it, but I don't know. I just thought it was funny. Well, I just imagine there being a screenwriter somewhere super proud of himself over the dumbest thing in the movie, which is at the very end where because that's like, you know how like sometimes in a movie it'll be called something and then eventually at some point in the movie, you know, it's like they bring something up and it basically explains to you why the title is what it is. And they do that at the end where it's like they basically say what you just said, except for Shannon Tweed gets to drop the action line of no contest. (laughs) And I'm just like, what? Like some dude's really proud of himself for writing that. Like, and that probably is like the, no, by by, by that finish of thought I had. No, I was going to say, but that, that some screenwriters really proud of themselves. Like I'm, I'm pretty glad I got that in there at the end. I thought that worked <laughs> yeah. very well, and it's like, nah, he's like, it was he's like nudging shitty. the dude next to him. Yeah, like just you know, yeah, like during the premiere, it's like, yeah. it, see, told you I got it in there, huh? Huh? <laughs> oh, but yeah, great. this is a great movie. This is exactly what uh, Thursday Night Prime, Prime was all about to me back in the day. Um, I thought it was the perfect movie to start us out with. And, uh, you know, honestly, if you guys are interested, if this sounds like something you'd like to check out, even just for a laugh, um, it's on Amazon Prime right now. So if you have Amazon uh, Prime, you can watch it for nothing right now. That's a cool aspect of this segment uh, for our consistent listeners that that are into stuff like this. You can watch um, right along this week. You know, we'll 
try to give a, a heads up, which we're going to do this week as well for next week, next week's um, Thursday night prime segment. If you have prime video, th- these are all going to be um, Ed and Jared watching them on prime each week to, to review them. So, and that leads me to next week. So if you guys want to get on the ball and watch this one and, you know, kind of join us for the conversation, you can do that. Uh, the one we are watching next week, or we're reviewing next week, is from 1993. It's from director Charles Kanganis, and it stars one of the, uh, well, more than one, actually. We have Daniel Nguyen, we have Maxwell Caulfield, and we also have John Saxon in the 1993 yeah. action flick, No Escape, No Return. That's right, No Escape, No Return. This is a good one. I don't know if you've ever seen this one before. I haven't seen this one in a really long time, but this is one of the ones that when I found it, I got super excited because this is definitely a good one as far as this goes. I can't remember it. I'm sure I have, so that's why I look forward to, to revisiting all these, like, you know, talk about nostalgia. And Yeah, we're starting off with a theme with the Thursday Night Prime movies that start with No. Exactly. Let's long, see how many we could do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we'll probably probably be up to thirty some episodes before we get onto the no movies. But uh, yeah. nonetheless, uh, as you could tell, this is a segment that me and the Jay both are really, really, really happy about and really uh, looking forward to doing. So we hope you guys enjoyed the first one. Um, that is our very first installment of Thursday Night Prime, where we can have some action injected into your lives hopefully we could do that for you during this time but uh let's take a quick break and when we come back we're going to finish off the show with a wonderful other, uh, another segment of goofs or goofs what do you say the jay sound like a plan love talking about our goofs let's do it so we'll be back right after this on the what's real podcast Hey guys, this is Jared with the What's Real Podcast. I'm here to talk about The Unsung Movie from Churchill Pictures. The Unsung is a brand new independent feature film from Churchill Pictures in association with Cut and Run Productions that is currently on the festival circuit and will be streaming and available on DVD and Blu-ray in 2020. You can check it out at www.theunsungmovie.com. In an old industrial town, a homeless man roams the streets looking for a place to rest. When a young girl is in danger, Eric runs to her aid and saves her from harm. She leads him to a homeless village where he is inspired by the friendships he makes there. Through newspapers and a radio, Eric learns about a series of murders taking place in town. Inspired by the comic books he reads, Eric creates an alter ego and attempts to get involved with the investigation. Hope lives in the shadows. Check out and follow the progress of the unsung movie through churchillpictures.com and theunsungmovie.com. Hey guys, Jared with What's Real Podcast, talking about ChurchillPictures.com, the brand new rebuilt website from independent production company, Churchill Pictures. Churchill Pictures, LLC, is Damiano Fusca, Jared Bajoris, and our team. We would proudly like to announce the relaunch of our official CP website, www.churchillpictures.com. We have been working long and hard with our website creator, Evan, dating back to nearly a year ago. Due to other priorities, our website had become very outdated and was in desperate need of being revamped and completely rehauled. The new website will act as our personal online art gallery of all our work. This will include uh, also work of contributing collaborators. We began CP in 2008 and have since created two feature films and numerous other projects, most of which can be viewed on the site. Check it out, www.churchillpictures.com. Churchill Pictures, picture the possibilities. 
And we're back. Our last break. We appreciate you guys sticking it out with us this week. Hope everybody is doing okay out there, obviously, with everything that's going on. We would love to hear from you. So if you guys have anything you'd like to add to the show whatsoever, you can do so by email. Just send an email to whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Again, that's whatsrealpod at gmail.com. For all your questions, concerns, complaints, or anything you'd like to see on the show, we'd love to hear from you. But... As we always finish up, the J, you know what time it is, don't you? It's time for Goofs or Goofs. Hey, y'all. And we have a really good one this week, I feel like. And uh, another one that's not so much, but we'll explain that in a minute. But the actual Goof of the Week is none other than Dr. Drew. You guys know who that is. You may remember Loveline from the 90s or all the fucking teen mom shows that are on MTV. This week, he had to apologize for a widely shared claim that coronavirus was uh, pe- press-induced panic. Um, apparently, uh, he was putting up a ton of videos downplaying the coronavirus. And uh, is essentially, like he has on many other things that I've seen throughout the last few years, been uh, extremely wrong about. Uh, like a lot of TV doctors that we see these days, these dudes are fucking hucksters if I've ever seen them. And uh, he's pretty much no different, it seems. We, we said it's just a, a, a shame um, with such a big audience. Like you're talking millions of people. Uh, he's an accredited doctor, obviously. So people listen to him. And, and we've been preaching like all, kind of our way of going about the, the waters of social media and navigating fake news and, and all these things. And you just have to take your time, some time and do definitive research. Get second, third, fourth opinions. Get get the experts, get the, the medical doctors that, that that know what they're talking about, that, that are the top accredited people and things like that. Scientists, you know, you just have to take time to do your research. Um, but you know, Dr. Drew just goes on there and, and spews his stuff, and you know, uh, I give him credit because um, you know, just this past weekend, uh, as always, we record on Tuesdays. We mentioned just the, the timeline things. Um, just this past Saturday, uh, he had said, "quote." My early comments about equating coronavirus with influenza were wrong. They were incorrect. Uh, He was referring to his consistent comments that Ed had alluded to between February and March. I was part of a chorus that was saying that, and we were wrong. And I want to apologize for that, end quote. So kudos for him to coming on there. Um, You know, that's all we ask sometimes is somebody admits their mistake, apologizes, and and move on. So I give him credit for that. But just going back to some of the things he was saying – you know, he, he said he once said you're mo- more likely to die after being hit by an asteroid than the highly contagious virus <laughs> and things, things along those lines. So, you know, it's 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 something that you would think somebody like Dr. Drew with his millions of followers and his platform and, um, you know, being a, a, an accredited doctor would, would take more time to really figure out what's going on before he's talking about being hit by asteroids and things like that. But as I always say to you, hey, Ed, even with doctors, goofs are goofs. Yeah, absolutely, because this guy is a giant dickbag in my estimation. Not really a fan to begin with, and uh, I'm not going to get into all the particulars, but uh, I'll just say that uh, we have a very big uh, disagreements of opinion about a lot of things. But, um, but yeah, certainly uh, worthwhile of being a goof. Um, I obviously wanted to bring this up too. Uh, this is brought to my attention a couple times today um, by people. And the reason why I bring it up here is because this is a guy that you generally get that gets called a goof frequently for a whole myriad of reasons. And I disagree. 
Um, and I think it gets a bad rap. And it's a brand new documentary that's coming out. It's called You Cannot Kill David Arquette. And the reason why I bring this up is him not being a goof is because he gets a lot of shit from people uh, in the wrestling community because he had some wrestling matches in the 90s, because he won the WCW title in the 90s, and he's somewhat more recently fallen back into professional wrestling. But the thing that I think a lot of people miss with David Arquette is during that original run, he made money uh, from his appearances with WCW and proceeded to donate all of it to the families of Brian Pillman and Owen Hart Uh, which I thought was a really cool move, and a lot of people don't necessarily know that. So I just don't particularly care for the needless shitting on the guy. He clearly loves professional wrestling, and if his name can get him booked places, maybe you should have more of a problem with the promoter than you do him being a professional wrestler. The guy seems to work really hard, especially in some of the newer things that I've seen, Um, and he's had some very interesting moments in wrestling that he didn't really need to do, but... You know, he loves it, so I give the guy credit there. But overall, the documentary is all uh, about that, as well as some of his his other personal demons with drinking and his career and things like that, too. But it looks really fucking good, and I'm definitely looking forward to checking out whenever it's available. I was saying to you bringing this up, hey, Ed, that there's no bigger definition of a goof than somebody like David Arquette. He's a classic goof. But as I always say, that's not necessarily a bad thing. As we know, I could speak for myself, but I know you'll attest. Like we're goofs. I call myself a goof yep. all the time, a huge goof. So it's not always correlated as bad. It's kind of more than anything a neutral thing. It can also be bad, but yeah, I mean he's just go- you know he's a goofy dude and stuff. And he was in the classic film. Maybe we will retro review that one day. The, the classic pro wrestling film from the '90s, um, Ready to Rumble, and that oh, yeah. infamous movie that's so bad that, that it's good in certain aspects. And, um, and yeah, but, but, uh, credit to where credit's due, as you mentioned, uh, he gave the proceeds of, of his championship win and the money he was making there to really good causes. He has a true respect for the business. He's gained the respect of most professional wrestlers that he has passed from what I can surmise, um, within my online experiences, reading about, about him and stuff. And even some of the matches I've checked out. I mean, he recently had an infamous match with the, the crazy hardcore wrestler uh, Nick Cage, or I'm sorry, Nick yep. Gage, and Nick Gage, uh, was yeah. was was seriously injured and hospitalized. And um, uh, to your point, man, just uh, watching the the trailer that that I saw, I don't know when it dropped. I just saw it today. Uh, I was making its rounds, but the documentary it looks really good. Um, and you know, we'll definitely have to watch that, cover that when we can. But I'm looking forward to it. Like you said, as goofy as as um, David Arquette is, I do have respect for him as an artist and an attempt to be a legitimate professional wrestler. So maybe this time, hey, Ed, I can't say goofs or goofs. But who knows? He's still a goof. That's it, man. So that's it for us this week. We appreciate you guys listening to the show as you do every week. We'd appreciate it, obviously, if you'd pass along the show to someone else that you think would enjoy it. As much as we enjoy doing it for you every week, we certainly would like to do it for more people, especially if they enjoy what we're talking about. So thanks for listening. Yeah, guys, I really appreciate it. Um, This has been a definite positive escape, which I consistently look for on a regular basis, let alone times like this where we're quarantined and dealing with a global pandemic. So uh, anybody hearing my voice right now, uh, much love to you. Stay healthy. Stay safe. As I always end the show, shout out to our producer, Cam. Thanks for all you do. Love the show. Hey, Ed, my man, did it again. Had a great time this week, brother. Looking forward to it next week. Take care, everybody.
Absolutely. So again, thank you everybody for listening. Thanks to our producer Cam for all the work that he puts in each and every week for us here on the show. Thanks to you, the J. There's nobody else I'd rather be doing it with, brother. So I appreciate you sitting down with me as you do every week. And that's it for us this week, guys, on the show. Hope you enjoyed it. Stay safe, stay healthy, and hopefully we'll see you next week. Take care, everybody.